episode of Video Game Logic. Today's show was recorded on February the 20th, 2018. I'm your host, Game Psychologist, and with me, as always, the second greatest partner I've ever had. Caffeine Rage? Uh, I'm not sure what to say about that. <laughs> and I'm not even uh, sure if I want to know the first greatest. Well, the first greatest is obviously Katie. I have to say she's that not, for legal reasons, yeah, she's otherwise not, she's she not murders here, me. Uh, she, uh, you don't have to suck up to her. <laughs> That's what you think. Oh my. On today's show, we are having a special show for episode 100. We're going to be de- debuting two brand new segments. The first, the name behind the game. We're going to be discussing the history of some of our favorite and most personally connecting video game companies. We'll be discussing our Mount Rushmore of important figures in gaming as our inaugural Mount Rushmore. We'll also have a tiny community corner. And if we have enough time at the end of the episode, we're going to throw on a discovery queue. Hello, Rage. Hello. We've been doing we've been doing this for two years and for technically a hundred numbered episodes, but really it's probably like what one twenty five. Actually, I believe the count is like one fifteen. Like one fifteen. I don't know why I'm talking in a sing song voice. It's probably just because I can. Uh, if you're talking in a sing song voice, shouldn't there be some sort of you know a harmony or tune to it? Um, I mean, now- I mean, you sound like an out of tune piano. I'm a shitty singer, so, nah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, if we make it to a thousand, the uh, present should be like kryptonite, but a hundred should be what? Uh, I don't, How many years would it take us to get to a thousand? It took us two to get to a hundred, so, excuse me. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'll live that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me neither. I'm, I'm trying to think of something follow, funny to follow that, but really, I've got nothing, so I'm just going to move us along to something. Hey, it's good uh, to I, see after 100 episodes, that hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really quickly, before we dive into things, a number of people asked me to talk about Black Panther, uh, the, the newest Marvel movie, and I will do that next week for two reasons. One, we don't know how long episode 100 is going to take, so I don't want to spend a bunch of time on something that's not related to episode 100 and number two i don't know how i feel about it yet <clears throat> there are many mixed feelings i have about that movie so oh, I next know, week i know my feelings for it already what uh, are they uh complete and utter not caring right <laughs> <laughs> that's fair i, I just uh, but, have no interest in uh, going to watch it but then again uh you know going to watch a movie is quite the journey for me yeah, so I'll I'll spend five to ten minutes discussing Black Panther next week. I'll say this week, it's the most Marvel movie to ever Marvel. So if you like Marvel movies, you'll probably like it. If you don't, you probably won't. And all the other stuff is a lot more nuanced. So we'll deal with that next week. Um, also, I'm currently running another ad campaign for the show. And so far, we have one new subscriber on Podbean. Hello, new subscriber. Hello. Hopefully, we don't run... Hopefully don't we don't scare you off this week. Yeah, th- this uh, week is a unusual week, especially for us. But uh, and it's kind of funny our 100th episode. I would argue if this was a 100th episode, I wouldn't want this to be a numbered episode. No, this would be something good to put in the the uh, the Franken episode bank 
Yeah, which we're going to do uh, more dedicated freaking uh, episode content and release some piecemeal once, you know, uh, we have a backup and, you know, whenever we have a week where we just don't have any content, usually when one of us is sick or Jared's life is getting in the way of things. How dare you have a life? Indeed. How dare I have a career and a family and things? Yeah, why can't you just be a, a lonesome loser like me? Honestly, sometimes I wish I was. It depends on how crazy the week is. But we'll uh, we'll just mosey on from that, too. I can tell by your silence you feel sad. <sighs> <laughs> All right, so we each have two companies to discuss the history of and our personal connection to on the name behind the game. And by the way, I did tell you guys that we'd come up with a better name for that. Uh, we're going to alternate... I am going to do uh, Microsoft first. Then Rage is actually going to do both of his. He's covering Nintendo and Sega, and they're so intertwined we decided not to separate them. And then I will finish us off with Ubisoft. Uh, do you have anything you want to say or discuss before we just dive in? Uh, not really. Uh, should I go get the popcorn for Microsoft? <laughs> I mean, if you want to. All right, and for these, we'll put timestamps uh, at the beginning of each specific one. I broke it up in the notes that way, and as long as I remember to do so, I'll get those in there. Yeah, you kind of uh, forgot a timestamp last week. Oh, uh, did I miss one? Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, well, unless we spent less than uh, a minute on uh, uh, the uh, games we played. I could It was four, <laughs> so uh, four something, then five something, if memory serves. Oh, whoops, I made a boo-boo. Oh, well. You know what else made boo-boos? Microsoft. Oh boy, here we go. All right, so Microsoft was founded by Bill Gates and Paul Allen in 1972, originally under the name Trafodata, or Trafodata, and began working on what we now refer to as an OS. At the time, it was referred to as an interpreter, which was designed to make interacting with computers easier by automatic automatically compiling and running program commands at the same time so that the user didn't have to manually compile code every time they wanted to ask their computer to do something. Uh, after their success with this interpreter, they rebranded the company as Microsoft. For some reason, it was originally two words, micro and then soft. Now it is one word. Microsoft solidified its presence in the software market in the early 90s with the creation of Xenix, which was a unix based operating system and MS-DOS. MS-DOS was the more popular of the two and practically became ubiquitous in the mid to late 80s due to it being able to run a wide selection of software and this solidified Microsoft's dominance in the early PC market. Uh, Microsoft Windows, the original Windows, was released in 1985 and has over the last 20 some odd years uh, became the graphical interface that we know it to be today. Data gathered in 2000 or in January of 2018, so this year, reveals that 82.7% of all PCs worldwide run some version of Windows. And more specifically to our purposes, the Steam hardware survey from 2017 revealed that 97.8% of all users have some type of Windows OS on their machine. Uh, conversely, any of the Apple OSs make up less than obviously less than 3% and Linux users are like point a half a percent or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but if you listen to the Linux users talk, boy, that is a big uh, point a half percent. 
Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. No, no, no I was fine. apologizing to the Linux user out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Who is it in our audience that uses Linux? We have at least one, don't we? Yeah, I know we do. It's just I'm blanking on who it is. That, that's why. I, I kind of jabbed, but then said, sorry. I, I don't want to get hacked. Uh, anyways, due to this market dominance, Microsoft has faced numerous lawsuits over the years from both other companies and various world governments due to having a de facto monopoly on the operating system market. So that wraps up the Microsoft basic company stuff. That's incredibly condensed. If you want to see a more fun, slightly more in-depth, mostly true retelling of Microsoft, watch The Pirates of Silicon Valley. Yeah, that, a fun movie. Yeah, that was a really good movie. Yeah, it's a fun movie, and also most of that stuff is historically accurate. Yeah, I mean, so. uh, they do add some drama, but that's pretty much how all the docudramas work, is that, you know, they uh, spice things up, but it's still close enough that you get a general idea. Yes. And. And. Moving on to the gaming side of Microsoft, first we're going to deal with the Xbox line of consoles. The original Xbox was released on November 15th, 2001 in North America, and later on in 2002 in the rest of the world. It was Microsoft's first attempt at a console. Its name is derived from the DirectX... Um, Driver set? API. I, API. Uh, and originally was focus tested as a, a number of other names. But Xbox stuck. Uh, it competed directly with the PS2 and GameCube for the sixth generation of gaming consoles. It was the first gaming console to have a built-in hard disk drive with a total of 10 gigabytes of memory, 8 which are usable by the console owner themselves to store game saves, the first digital downloads, uh, well, first widespread digital downloads, and ripped music from CDs, which the console could store on its hard drive and play during gameplay, a feature that has persisted throughout the generations of Xbox console. It was built using standard PC hardware as opposed to custom-built and custom-designed hardware, meaning that it was both easily moddable, upgradable, and repairable by the user. It did suffer from... <clears throat> excuse me. It did suffer from being much heavier and more delicate, though, as things were not all completely soldered together. Uh, and it was the most powerful 6th generation console in terms of graphical processing power, but it was more expensive than its counterparts, both to being using more powerful hardware and also not being custom built uh, and just using off the shelf counterparts, which seems counterintuitive to my research, but that's what it seemed to show. The integrated Xbox live service launched in November of 2002, allowing players to play online with any internet connection, meaning that you could somehow try and play first person shooters like Halo over a dial up connection. Xbox Live was a success compared to its counterparts due to having better servers, dedicated servers, having a friends list, originally known as the buddy list, and milestone titles like Halo 2, which released on it and kept the service alive, the the old service, I should say, alive and running all the way up until uh, 2012. Yep. I didn't actually write that uh, down. Well, I'm pulling that out of my ass. Yeah, didn't Halo 2 also... Uh, keep the server or the original service alive for far longer than they planned because a bunch of people started playing it and uh, wouldn't stop playing it. So the match kept going and going and going until the consoles eventually either died or power issues or that sort of thing. Yep. Yep. 
They it ran for something like two weeks past the date they intended to shut it down because they started the games and kept them running. But yeah, one by one they dropped off due to power issues, like you know, power going out or storms, um, or someone like unplugging the console by accident, or fucking Comcast. Yeah, or their internet going out. Um, moving on to the Xbox 360. That released in 2005 to both a large amount of fanfare and disgust from consumers. Development issues and the desire to be first to market meant that the console shipped with, among other things, bad soldering uh, and other mechanical issues, which led to the infamous Red Ring of Death. The console had a 23% failure rate within 12 months and a 54% failure rate within five years from the original run of consoles. Personally, I had ooh, 12 Xbox 360s. During my time of having the console, I mean, some of those were upgrades to the various models, but in that initial run, I had like four in the first year. So you had an Xbox 4320? <laughs> yeah, something like that, I guess. Oh, well, I quickly did the math. <laughs> uh, later models corrected these problems, and ultimately no lasting damage was done to the 360 brand. Over its lifetime, the Xbox 360 sold 84 million units worldwide and continues to slowly sell in other countries where new stock still exists and as a cheaper alternative to the Xbox One. The 360 was the first iterative console in the sense that different models as opposed to updates or add-ons were released over the span of its lifetime uh, with incrementally improved performance and usability while still maintaining the capability to play all Xbox 360 games. That is, the older consoles could still play the newer games. Excluding special or limited edition runs of the console, there were seven major revisions of the console over the course of its decade lifespan, with the Xbox 360 ES being the final model released in 2013 alongside the Xbox One. The 360 continued to be supported with software updates through the beginning of 2017 and can still be serviced and repaired by Microsoft until 2020. Additionally, the Xbox Live version for the 360 is still running and receiving regular updates with no shutoff date in sight or having been announced at any conference that we know of. The production of the console ended in late 2014, meaning that the console had a nine-year run as a manufacturing product and is the most dominant console from the sixth generation. Or, sorry, the seventh generation. Uh, technically, the Wii did sell more units than, I think, any console ever, but it was this weird sort of lightning-in-a-bottle amalgamation that died, like, that just died after the initial sales. Nintendo managed to hook the customers with the... <clears throat> the Wii motion controls and then did shipped up an abysmal amount of games after the initial push. So excluding the Wii, the Xbox 360 was the dominant console of that generation. Although getting slightly off track, the Wii U came out partway through that lifespan too, which complicates things. Uh, moving on though, in an attempt to copy motion controls from the Wii, Microsoft released the Kinect a full-body motion tracker that initially used a combination of infrared and a camera to track movements for both control of the console and for specific games. It also included voice commands for the same functionality. Overall, it was a huge flop due to the need for a huge space to utilize it, how finicky and unresponsive the camera was, and the $150 price tag. The Xbox One released in late 2013, Microsoft called it the One because it was intended to be one device to manage your entire media center. It has both input and outputs on it whoa. so that your cable box... Whoa. So that your cable box and other living room accessories can be plugged directly into it and controlled via the console. 
It has many built-in features that allow you to control these devices with a big focus being on TV. You can also use the Kinect to control your cable box and other devices plugged into the console. It was originally de designed as an always online console, and while some benefits would come from this, overall it was a negative idea that received much backlash from both the industry and consumers. The focus on multimedia and Kinect support meant that it was severely underpowered out of the gate and faced massive amounts of consumer backlash. While now slowly closing the gap due to upgrades in the recently released Xbox One X, this backlash cost Don Matrick his job, and he was later replaced by Phil Spencer as the head of the Xbox division. The Xbox One X is the third iteration of the Xbox One in this console cycle, uh, the Xbox One S being the second. The S was simply a smaller console with a slightly more powerful processor, while the Xbox One X is a massive improvement and overhaul of the system with a huge addition of power added. It's currently the most powerful gaming console on the market with a similar raw GPU output to an AMD RX 480. The console streamlining process allows for performance outputs close to a GTX 1070. While it's too soon to tell how the Xbox One X will shake out, its first few months do appear promising with older games getting graphical and frame rate boosts on more powerful hardware and new games offering players choice between graphical fidelity, frame rate, or a balanced mode between the two. <clears throat> Excuse me, taking a, a sip there. As for the games, Microsoft has comparably few first-party titles compared to other console developers. It's published some under its Microsoft Game Studio, but even this list remains dwarfed by Nintendo, Sony, or other dedicated game developers. A few notable Microsoft titles are the Flight Simulator series, Age of Empires, Crimson Skies, the entire MechWarrior 4 saga, Freelancer, and most notably for Microsoft, the Halo franchise. As for these specific games, I think you all know how I feel about Freelancer and my extensive experience with it. I have a YouTube video dedicated to why I love Freelancer so much. As for Halo, Halo is credited as the series that put the Xbox on the map. It has 84 million copy, excuse me, 84 million copies of the franchise games have sold to date. Five of the top 10 selling Xbox titles across all platforms are Halo games. And save for Halo Wars and Halo ODST, all games are in the top 10 selling games for that console which they initially released on. The Halo Remastered Collection and Halo 5 are both credited with saving the Xbox One from financial loss in 2004 and 2015 respectively before the console could change direction to recover from its launch backlash and start to get more consoles in people's homes. Halo Combat Involved was inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame in 2017 as the 16th game on the list for meeting and exceeding these four criteria, its icon status being widely recognized and remembered by a majority of gamers, its longevity as more than a passing fad, it has enjoyed popularity over a long period of time, it has geographical reach that meets the above criteria across international borders, and its influence, it has exerted a significant influence on the design and development of other games and on other forms of entertainment or popular culture and society in general. The Master Chief is considered to be a pop culture icon in combination or comparable in recognition to, and I swear to God, I'm not making this up. This was in the article. Luke Skywalker, Frodo, or Spider-Man. Really? He is the, f yep. He is the first and only video game character to have a wax recreation made of him in Madame Tussard's wax museum. There have been some Warcraft characters that were inducted or that were had wax busts made, but they technically went with the movie, the the Warcraft movie. So uh, he's technically the only one there. That's technically correct. Yes, he's technically the only video game character there. 
which I found fascinating because, you know, you would think that Mario would be there, but mm-hmm. nope, no Mario. So that is an overall history of the company and the high points and the things that I think are the most important. As for my personal history with Microsoft, oh lord, the bulk of my gaming experience as a preteen and a teen and even up, up through my college years was with Microsoft. I did start on a Nintendo console like I think most people did who grew up in the 90s. <clears throat> Nintendo or Sega maybe, but I did have a Super Nintendo. But once I got my first Xbox, once I actually played an Xbox for the first time, I was hooked for life. Um, the first time I ever played an Xbox, I was on vacation with my family <coughs> in in South Carolina, I think. Um we used to go golfing a lot. And the hotel that we stayed at had a game lounge in the basement where that you could go and just get games off of their shelf and play. And they had an Xbox there. And my dad and I went down and played Halo. And I was hooked for life. As soon as we got back from that trip, I used all of my money that I had saved up from like birthdays and Christmases and stuff. Went to the store with my dad and bought an Xbox and Halo and some other games. And I was hooked for life. Um, I've owned every single... Well, not every single, but I've owned each of the mainline Xbox consoles. So the original Xbox. I had several versions of the Xbox 360. And I purchased the day one edition of the Xbox One X. Or not X. Sorry, just the Xbox One. Uh, It gets a little confusing, doesn't it, after a while? It does get confusing. Xbox is almost as bad at naming things as Nintendo. Maybe worse. It's hard to say. Well, sometimes. to be fair, you know, Microsoft can't count. I mean, just look at the Windows iterations. Yeah. Uh, 3.195, 7, <laughs> 8, 10. Yeah, they skipped Windows 9. I don't know where that is. Uh, supposedly, th- th- there's actually an interesting history behind that. Supposedly, that's due to uh, a potential compatibility problem with Windows 95 because. Uh, the way Windows is identified in the files themselves, uh, they were afraid that Windows 9, uh, outside of the whole German Windows 9, hi uh, uh, would be uh, uh, having some weird compatibility issues with 95, so they decided just to skip the entire version number to uh, get rid of any potential flawed code that could cause issues there. That's what I always heard, at least. Didn't know that, but if that was the real reason, I mean, that seems to make sense, I guess. I don't know why you'd care about Windows 95 at this point. Well, but... there's a lot of legacy software out there, particularly in the business side of things. Oh, uh, yeah. That makes sense. So, uh, it getting installed on uh, Windows 9, or what yeah, would have been Windows 9, it could try to do some sort of weird compatibility mode with 95, and then just <laughs> things go to shit. To be fair, you know, right. Windows 10 typically does go to shit anyway, unless you're yep. very, very careful with it. Sometimes even when you're very careful with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I've owned every uh, mainline Xbox console, which granted there's only three, but still, that's three consoles that I've, that I've purchased. Like I said earlier, I had something like 14 Xbox 360s. Part of those were due to Red Ring of Death, and part of them was, um, I mean, I was, oh, I was working when all of those versions of the 360 came out, because I was in high school and then later in college, 
and they'd release like a new special edition or an upgrade and I'd be like, yeah, I'll buy that because you could just transfer everything from one Xbox to the other using Xbox Live. Uh, and you could do that as many times as you wanted. So I would just buy a new console, transfer all my stuff and then sell it. Or in high school, I would just keep them because we would have land parties and I had, uh, four TVs that I've acquired over the years. And then at one point I did have four Xbox 360s so that everyone could just come and bring their controller and we'd play games, mostly Gears of War and Halo. Cause I mean, that's what you played on Xbox. Um, there were another, there were a number of obscure tiles on Xbox 360 that I played as well. Well, one of them, which I talked about a couple of episodes ago, um, with Lost Odyssey, Blade Storm, which I mentioned to you before we started recording, mm-hmm. uh, was originally an Xbox 360 release. So I have a, a lot of experience during that period of my life playing Xbox. I had a PlayStation 2 as well, but I never bought a PS3 because I was an Xbox kid. I had an Xbox. So I probably have spent in my lifetime, oh, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 on Xbox related things, Damn. consoles, controllers, games. I mean, that's over the years, but yeah, looking back on that, I wish I hadn't spent as much money, but you know, I was single or, you know, in high school and early college relationships. So, you know, it was all bullshit. I didn't have a responsible handle on how to really save money. So I just spent on stuff all the time and I was a gamer. So that's why I spent a bunch of money on. Uh, my favorite purchase that I ever had, though, and the only reason that I want to buy one of the custom Elite controllers that you can get now is uh, there used to be a lot of fun colors that you could buy controllers in, and I had pink Xbox 360 controllers. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I see, where you're, go- yeah, I see where you're going with this. So, uh, unfortunately, I mean, they died, and... You couldn't get the pink ones anymore, so I just stuck to the white and black ones. At least and, with that attitude. For a while, you could only get black Xbox One controllers, but now you can get them in some colors, or you can do the custom paint jobs for the uh, Elite controller. But, I mean, there's the the better part of, oh, 15 years now? Let's see. Yeah, the better, the better part of, of 15 years... I was pretty much primarily, if not exclusively, an Xbox gamer. And only in the last couple of years have I really gotten into PC gaming. Welcome to Master Race, brother. I had some PC games before that, but it was mostly just the stuff that you couldn't get on Xbox that really only worked on PC, like World of Warcraft, EVE Online, and a few RTS games, uh, primarily the Red Alert series, but a couple others. And otherwise, I played Xbox games. So, God, so many years, so many memories. I was the one of the first people. Well, at one point in time, I was uh, in Gears of War. I was in the top 100 for a couple of their leaderboards for f- different game modes. Uh, I was in the top 100 for Execution, and I was in the top 10 for the Assassination game mode. And I went to a couple of tournaments, like local, regional tournaments, and we actually won. That was cool. Uh, I went to a bunch of Halo tournaments, but Halo was much more popular, and there were a lot more better players than me. So that word you got but stomped. I did. I still was able to pretty reliably place in like the top ten at local stuff. I won a couple of like really local, like my local game shop 
when that was still a thing before they went out of business, would occasionally do tournaments to bring people in. I won one of those. That was pretty cool. Uh, when I was, uh, in high school, I was in our school's computer club and I was in charge of doing like social events and I did so many Halo tournaments. I've looked for them to try and post them. Um, I used to make like these really, <laughs> really shitty, uh, almost like shit post type posters to put up for the tournaments. That was a lot of fun. And we actually had like real prize money. Like I, there were entry fees and whoever won got the prize money. I mean, it was never a lot. It was like, you know, 25 or 30 bucks. But when you're like a freshman in high school, that can be a lot of money for you. Yeah. I just have so many, so many memories tied to Xbox and Microsoft through gaming. Most of my, you know, adolescence was spent playing these games. But I think for now that's enough. I could go on for forever kind of wandering aimlessly down memory lane. But I think, I think for now that's enough. For now, <laughs> because, yeah, this is going to be a long one. So, uh, shall I take over? Because uh, I don't really have any questions about Microsoft. I know a fair amount of, of what you talked about. Uh, yeah. Granted, I never had an Xbox console at all. The closest I've ever had was the 360 controller, which, well, with how Microsoft uh, eventually started porting their titles, for the most part, I mean, Halo is still... Uh, the odd one out in that list. Uh, most of them are at least partly available on PC, so there was never a reason for me to jump ship. Yeah. Microsoft, uh, for most of their lifetime, has been pretty good about having games on on PC and console. There was a stint there during the Xbox 360 days where that a lot of games only stayed to on the console. Like, once they got ahead in the console race, um, because for the first six or seven years of that generation, um, aside from the Wii's launch, the Xbox was king. It took a long time for Sony to catch up, and they still are behind in terms of numbers sold. They closed the gap a lot, but they're still five or six million units behind Xbox. And during that time period where they were king, they didn't bring as many other titles to PC. But now, aside from, I believe, the Halo series, any game that releases for the console, you can play on PC. So, you never really had a reason to jump ship unless you were kind of in in my boat. You know, you were a console gamer who wanted to, or, you know, who didn't really stray from that. I do have one question for you, and I was a little bit surprised at how powerful the uh, Scorpio slash Xbox One X really was. Because I looked up some comparisons online. Well, this is also uh, usually them targeting 30 FPS, not 60 yeah. So that's yeah. uh, you know saving them t- uh, half the power. Well, depending on you know how that actually works, because you know it could uh, not be half; it could be a, a different fraction, but still. Yeah, but still, I was surprised that it was putting out equal raw GPU power to an RX 480 or you know mm-hmm. a GTX 980, like in that range, which is still a little bit behind the curve compared to the 1070 and the 1080. But I was yeah, like, but good damn. luck finding them these days. Yeah, that's the thing. I've heard or several uh, PC-centric YouTube channels that I fo- follow have been talking about, should you buy a gaming console if you're wanting to buy a new gaming PC just because of the lack of avail- availability of GPUs? And that's where I got that information on the uh, the One X. Honestly, right now, I've actually been looking at uh, pre-made uh, PCs because right now that's the... <laughs> it's kind of uh, strange wearing this 
weird place where uh, it's like the late 90s, early 2000s, where the best bang for the buck, once again, is buying pre-made. Yeah, because they have uh, the bulk company discount, plus they get first run at everything, as opposed to the consumer stuff, which is usually after what the big companies take. Yeah, just go in and immediately reformat the fucker. Yeah, reformat it, and I mean, you could do a little bit of customization too, but most pre-built PCs, about the only thing that's kind of iffy on them tends to be hard drives. Like well, they I would tend say to uh, to... Uh, the power supply. Oh, yeah, power supply. Power supplies and hard disks instead of SSDs. But you just take that hard disk, reformat it, like you said, take an SSD and stick it in there for your boot drive. But, yep. Just want to know how you felt about the Scorpio. Uh, it... It's a it's it's in an interesting spot, but it's also being helped greatly by the fact that PC gaming is being absolutely screwed right now by both a RAM shortage and just price gouging out the wazoo, and uh, the just rarity of GPUs because of all the Bitcoin mining, and well, cryptocurrency mining, I should say, not just Bitcoin, but still. Uh, uh, there was also a, a news story I saw. I know we're off topic, but. It's episode 100. Deal with it. Uh, that NVIDIA was actually talking about building a cryptocurrency mining video card. Have you seen that? No. I don't know why they would. Yeah, but it, it, it makes no sense to me. But I mean, uh, maybe... They're basically trying everything to get their uh, GPUs into the hands of gamers. Well, I mean, I, I commend them for that if it's more than just PR speak. But I don't really see the point of building a specific mining card. I mean, crypto fluctuates like crazy. It's down right now. I'm sure it'll be up again at some point, and then it'll go back down again. I mean, the only other Those thing speculative could, markets are the only other thing I can think of that would uh, it could also be used for is animation. Yeah, they could make a specialty card that would they could sell for that sort of dual purpose. But anyway, uh, we are way off track, so shall we talk about Nintendo? Indeed. Go ahead and talk about Nintendo, Rach. Okay, Nintendo. Oh, as I hit uh, the desk, as I roll up a little bit uh, to get a little closer to the microphone, there'll be some interesting noises on uh, Audacity. So, Nintendo was founded in 18, not 19, 1889. It is 128 years old as of this year, which I knew it was old. You knew it was old, but I think that's a fact that a lot of gamers don't realize just how ancient Nintendo is. And that's a little surprising to a lot of people. It was founded in 1890, uh, 1889 by Fujiko Yamachi. I'm going to be butchering Japanese names left and right here, okay? So, deal with it. And they've gone through multiple phases throughout the years, to the point where I would argue that you could call Nintendo a series of three, maybe four different companies. Because they've wildly shifted their focuses. So, they started out as a playing card company, and this lasted until the 1950s, when two trips to the United States changed the future of Nintendo. A visit to Disney, of all people, to license their characters for playing cards, gave the then-CEO of Nintendo, the grandson of the founder, Hiroshi Yamaruchi, a taste of a bigger entertainment sector 
and they were and he was also able to see just how small and lean the top manufacturer of playing cards in the United States, the United States playing card company, was at the time. At the time, Nintendo had this absolutely massive operation going with a few hundred people. In the United States, that was handled by about a dozen or so people. And he saw just the overhead that Nintendo was having to deal with. Granted, they also had a lot better quality, but he saw that there was going to be a severe limitation in the future for playing cards. And it made him feel like he was going to have to change the scope of his company. So in 1963, Yamuchi renamed Nintendo Playing Card Company, the name that they started with, to Nintendo Company Limited, and started various ventures to try to diversify their market. These include everything from instant rice, taxis, and even love hotels. Oh my. You, uh, you did know about that, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, Nintendo actually had a chain of love hotels for a while. And according to rumors, the biggest uh, uh, user of their love hotels was the CEO himself, a married man. <laughs> so, yeah, Nintendo has quite the seedy history. Uh, but most of these either saw either no or very limited success. And after a just an absolute crash in their profits following the uh, drop in uh, playing cards uh, sales after the Tokyo Olympics in 1964, they were having very, very severe problems to the point where their stock, uh, in modern terms, uh, price-wise, was somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to 20 cents per share. I mean, they just absolutely tanked. But their big break came in 1966, or I should say the first of their big breaks, when they changed focus again. They tasked a line engineer that was working on maintaining the card uh, assembly lines, Gunpei Yokoi, which, if you recognize that name, he would later go on to be the father of the Game Boy. And they wanted him to create, in their words, something great. Well... He just happened to have something great. He was a, a a little bit of a tinkerer, as you may imagine. I mean, he was an inventor. So he presented a toy that he had built in his spare time called the Ultra Hand. If you ever seen Looney Tunes where the, uh, you know, the hands on this long sort of spring that shoot out, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yes. He basically yes, built yes, yes. a real life version of that in, okay. in the 60s. And the CEOs absolutely loved it. And it went on to sell, uh, I think it was half a million cop uh, or versions of it, which in Japan is absolutely massive. And it was just an absolute smash hit. And it caused Nintendo to shift focus into the toy business. <laughs> so we've gone from playing cards to instant rice, taxis, and love hotels, along with some other ventures in that time, to toys now. <laughs> I knew that Nintendo made toys at one point. Yeah. So, uh, they went through a rather long list of toys, uh, slowly shifting into electronic toys in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, but they made everything from light gun games, love testers, which was pretty much just testing the connectivity between people, uh, if you know what I mean, and remote control cars. So, yeah, quite still schizophrenic. <laughs> well... Their first major break into video games came when they secured the, dis the distribution rights to the Magnavox Odyssey, 
Nintendo then began to work on their own hardware after getting a taste of video game success with the distribution of that console. And they started making a series of uh, dedicated consoles, as in uh, game consoles that had their games hardwired into them. Think uh, essentially Pong boxes, even though they had a couple of racing games and I think there was a light gun game in there as well as uh, to mix things up. So they slowly were shifting further and further into video games. And in 1979, after watching a commuter on a train uh, toying around with a LCD calculator, Gunpei Yokoi once again came up with the idea of portable games. The first of which was the Game & Watch, a series of LCD games that was once again a massive hit. There was 60 different versions of these dedicated games that also served as alarm clocks. This was also the birthplace of the modern D-pad. <laughs> so that gives you an idea as to how old the D-pad is, huh? Yep. I, uh, I've played quite a few Game & Watch yeah, I never got to play much of the uh, of the Game & Watch. Uh, I saw a couple of the watch versions of it, not the clamshell, I think, Nintendo DS version. Matter of fact, that's uh, almost an allusion to the Game & Watch, that just typical build of that uh, uh, handheld device. But Nintendo loved the D-pad so much that it actually patented the damn thing, and that's why we didn't see a decent D-pad on consoles outside the Nintendo consoles for a very, very long time, because the best D-pad was patented. So, finally, they wanted to get into a full console market with interchangeable games. The Famicom, or Family Computer, on July 15th, 1983, and remember that date, by the way, uh, uh, was released, and they brought ports of their arcade titles. Up until that, this point, they had been also working in the arcade side of things, which was it still continues to be very big in Japan. And it was an absolute hit, with sales starting strong in Nintendo. Oh, sorry, uh, Nintendo uh, saw strong sales in Japan, and they started looking towards other markets, and they saw the North American market, which was just absolutely deci- uh, decimated in 1983, following the major market crash that Atari caused. They saw this as an opportunity, so they started shipping their their console there, originally under the name, hang on, let me find it here, because I'm a little out of sync with my notes, uh, the Advanced Visual uh, Unit, uh, at, at the 1984 CES, and it just flopped. They tried to market it as a computer. It looks absolutely nothing like the Nintendo Entertainment System. It had a, a, a cassette drive. It had a keyboard. It had wireless joysticks. They only showed it once at this uh, uh, trade show, and it did so poorly that they went completely back to the drawing board for a complete refocus on their console. They decided to focus on the gaming side of things. Because that was their strength, and they had their arcade lineage back in Japan. So they stripped down the console, got rid of the keyboard, got rid of all the multimedia uh, creation functions, because it was also a media creation tool, music, that sort of thing, and focused squarely on games. But they had a problem. The market in North America was absolutely fucking toxic to the words video 
games to the point that Nintendo couldn't even call their game uh, system a video game system, it, which is why it's an entertainment system. They didn't have cartridges. They had game packs. It was a marketing trick to try to warm people back to the idea of video games because Atari just completely poisoned the well in North America. And at first, it was very, very slow. They saw a limited release in North America in 1985, or, or 1984, sorry. 85 was the, uh, was the country-wide release. And they had an uphill battle the entire way. Uh, they had balls, uh, uh, which would uh, allow them in, but only if they brought a celebrity, and then they would refuse to allow them to show the console because they only wanted the celebrity uh, endorsement for the mall. Uh, they, uh, they had to fight just tooth and nail to get p uh, the console into the stores themselves because people were absolutely burned a few years prior with Atari and all the uh, various consoles that that spawned. To the point that Nintendo actually had to strike a deal and instead of the stores buying stock and then selling their stock uh, at, a, at a profit... Nintendo actually gave the stores the consoles and the stores only paid Nintendo for what they sold and shipped back the rest. It was a completely new way to do it because the stores refused to deal with Nintendo any other way. And it finally started to slowly work. Word of mouth and marketing started ratcheting up further and further and further. And by the time that 1985 hit for the countrywide release, the console was on fire. It was selling like crazy. And the really the decade of Mario quickly took off because of the pack-in cartridge. And that was that's really the end of my history with Nintendo because this is where I kind of come in with the late 80s, early 90s. I had a Nintendo Entertainment System with uh, Mario and Fucking duck hunt and that goddamn dog. <laughs> Super Smash Brothers proved me right, by the way. I knew that dog was not on my side. I knew it was with the ducks. And it fucking proved it. Uh, I had a little bit of experience with uh, consoles before that. The uh, uh, the ColecoVision. I played a little bit of Atari. Uh, but the Nintendo was really something different back in the day. And to the point where Mario became the face of gaming for, I would say, until about 2000 when Master Chief started to take over a bit of that role. He, I mean, it's not to say Mario's obscure by any means, but he's not as important as, as a figure as he once was. It's uh, just staggering the uh, change of the market, looking back at uh, just how much Nintendo had to fight to even get into the stores. Uh, any questions so far? So far, no. I, I mean, I find <clears throat> the history of Nintendo fascinating that I was unaware of. But yeah, and this is surprisingly, I knew a good chunk. Yeah, of this that. is also speaking in very broad strokes. I mean, I'm uh, cutting out a fair amount of their arcade days, for example, because there's not a lot to talk about there outside of their slow buildup, uh, and uh, I could go more into the. Just uh, how schizophrenic they were in the 60s, trying to really find something else outside of playing cards before they got into toys, because there was a fair amount of there, but yeah, uh, 
Instant race taxis and love hotels is probably the highlight to that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, they also had so, a, a TV company at one point. Okay, didn't know that either. Yeah, oh, that failed as well, by the way. I was going to say, I've never heard of Nintendo TV, so I would suspect so. Yeah, and uh, Nintendo, uh, 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 solved the problem of the game crash actually surprisingly well. Uh, and that's part of the reason why they were such a big success in the 80s and 90s was that the uh, video game crash, which it's something that we should probably do a complete separate thing on. Uh, it is kind of the Steam Direct problem right now where there's just so much out there of poor quality that it was overwhelming the market add to the fact that anyone could build for an Atari system or the countless other consoles that was out there Nintendo solved this through the lockout chip and in order to build a, a game for Nintendo's uh, system you had to work through Nintendo get the uh, access through the lockout chip, you had to buy the cartridges through Nintendo which factored in the royalty fees, which was also another way to generate revenue because Atari didn't do this and missed out on a lot of potential royalties that modern gaming has. And Nintendo severely limited the market. Did you know that up until late in the NES uh, lifetime, game companies were only allowed to release five games a year? No, but that might be a godsend. At this point in time. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> uh, green, there was a couple companies that got around this by forming secondary companies. Uh, uh, I think Konami was the big one that uh, formed a secondary company to get another five games and also another revenue for cartridges because Nintendo was also suffering from cartridge shortages, which was also why the cartridges were so fucking expensive back in the day. Uh, each cartridge was... Uh, between five and eighteen dollars, uh, uh, th that was the royalty fee to the companies, and uh, Nintendo outright pissed off some of their developers, which comes into play a little bit later in my history with Sega, where they would uh, try to fulfill orders, but they would only ship a quarter of the cartridges that were requested, and would outright refuse to give more cartridges because they didn't have them. So, this is a good uh, place to bring in Sega. Oh, and I never mentioned what Nintendo actually means, did I? Uh, no, you did not. What does Nintendo mean? Well, it's a rather fitting name for uh, a trading card company or a playing card company. It means leave luck to heaven. <laughs> That's pretty neat, actually. I like that. Uh, kind of fitting. All right. So, th this is a good place to bring in Sega because uh, the uh, histories with both uh, Nintendo and Sega are so closely tied, particularly in the 90s. So Sega, which also is short for something. You want to go ahead and say what that is? Well, Nintendo started life as standard games, which eventually became service games. Should I uh, let, let you figure that one out? Does Sega stand for standard service games? No, uh, S-E-G-A, service games. Oh, okay. So, All right. so they started life... As standard games ran by three American businessmen out of Hawaii, Martin Bomley, Irving Bomley, his son, or their, their father and son team, and James Humbert. Well, they provided coin-operated entertainment 
to military bases. Seeing that it was the onset of World War II and an increase in servicemen would lead to a great demand for on-base entertainment. After the war, they sold the company, uh, Standard Games, and established a new distribution company, Service Games, Sega for short. Then, in 1951, they hit a problem. The U.S. government started cracking down on slot machines, pinball machines, and other things associated with gambling and immoral behavior with the Transport of Gambling Act, which outlawed, which outlawed slots and coin-operated devices in U.S. Territories, territories and in the United States proper. But Sega took this in stride and saw it as an opportunity. They shifted their market to Japan, setting up game rooms off-base for station servicemen and locals, and to fuel this, they bought confiscated machines from the U.S. government and shipped them to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about fucking smart, huh? <laughs> yeah. They probably got them cheap, too. Yeah, I mean, dirt cheap if they bought them in auction. Uh, uh, yeah, by the <laughs> pallet or, you know, however you want to call it. So, in Japan, Sega came into contact with Dave Rosen of Rosen Entertainment, uh, or sorry, Rosen Enterprises. And much like Sega, he was expat working in Japan in the coin-operated photo booths and uh, various arcade machines. And seeing strength and working together the two companies merged, keeping the name Sega. So we're up to, what, three companies now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sega's history in Japan is very, very murky because there was another acquisition and there was some mixing and uh, things. And since I'm talking in broad strokes, I'm going to skip over a fair amount of this. So within a year of this merger, they started manufacturing their own machines, including their first major machine. Uh, well, they uh, worked on other various uh, uh, arcade stuff, jukeboxes and that sort of thing, but they their first major video game was a submarine uh, simulator called Periscope. This was an extremely large, complex machine that was also highly innovative for the time. And it's also the first arcade machine to change from the standard dom to a quarter to play. Uh, uh, quite fascinating there, huh? Periscope sounds familiar. It's an absolutely massive machine. I mean, I, I just saw uh, some pictures of it, and it just looks uh, like it's a, it's a monstrosity. Sorry, I'm looking this so, up. So, uh, throughout the 70s, uh, was a golden age of uh, arcade titles for Sega, which bolstered their position in Japan. They produced their first stereoscopic, uh, th- uh, the first stereoscopic 3D uh, game, uh, Subrock 3D, the first laser discs game, Astron Belt, which... Uh, uh, came out behind uh, uh, shoot now I'm blanking on the uh, name of the first one that was in uh, the US but it was the first one developed Uh, but times weren't uh, to last for Sega arcade sales started to fall uh, as uh, the home market started to rise up and Sega looked to enter the home gaming market during this time they started to license their titles to Atari but uh, look to uh, do their own things. Enter the SG-1000, Sega's first attempt at the home console market, which released on July 15th, 1983. That didn't sound familiar? That's the exact fucking day the Famicom released. So, Nintendo and Sega has quite the star-crossed lover thing, don't they? <laughs> If that's what you want to call the relationship, sure. I, 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 
I knew that they released in the same year uh, when I was doing my research. I was just astounded that it was the same day in Japan. I mean, that's quite the thing. And things went okay for first, but the Famicom quickly started to outstep them. And with the sheer number of other consoles on the market at the time, it was just too much for Sega. They were left picking up the scraps from Nintendo. And they only really did well where Nintendo didn't penetrate the market, Europe and South America mostly, as the SG-1000 eventually was replaced with the SG-1002, and then the Sega Mark III, which was then rebranded to the Master System. But a lack of third-party support due to Nintendo's policies left Sega behind, which I should talk about Nintendo's policies here. Nintendo required a couple things of... uh, developers for one to buy the cartridges like i said also to sign an exclusivity deal with them which tied up most of the third party support which was why nintendo's nes had such a wide variety of games and other consoles at the time really didn't and this got nintendo in trouble legally later later on by the way and they eventually had to release their grip as uh, developers started jumping ship but more on that later Well, Sega knew they had to do something big to capture the gaming public. And they did this with the Mega Drive, or in in North America, the Genesis. Only to be upstaged once again. (laughs) (laughs) They released on October 29th, 1988 in Japan. A few days after Super Mario Bros. 3 released, which drew a huge amount of attention from the gaming public. (laughs) Oh, well, it still sold well. They were unable to really make a dent in the market share in, uh, for Nintendo. Many third-party developers were still tied up at Nintendo. And even though they uh, lost out on uh, this, and they even lost out on the 16-bit market in uh, Japan with NEC's PC Engine holding the market share there. <coughs> so they set sights for North America where the Master System, uh, distributed by Tonka, of all people, sold poorly. Yes, Tonka distributed the Master System. I think we found out why the Master System didn't do well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this time they contacted Atari, because, you know, that's a lot better, to handle things. Green, they did have the braid requisition at the time. May not be a good thing at this point. And while Atari declined to handle the deal... The head of Atari's Entertainment Electronics Department, Michael Katz, was poached by Sega to handle the launch. He set an aggressive marketing campaign outright attacking Nintendo and focused on Sega's arcade routes to drive sales, and it worked. This booster was boosted even further by a security of electronic arts to develop on the Genesis. In the past, they had refused to work with Nintendo, due to Nintendo's iron fist when it came to exclusivity and manufacturing a console, or or, uh, cartridges on the Nintendo console, which is why the EA cartridges for Sega has that little yellow tab. Sega allowed them to manufacture their own cartridges to be able to sign a deal with EA, which started to eat away at Nintendo's market share, which followed up with even more aggressive marketing and outright attacking Nintendo. This campaign turned into a full-scale console war with new leadership in Sega of America, Tom Klasinski, a, a, a price drop for the system, 
and a change of uh, tone for Sega to a more edgy slash cool feel. And also, they changed the bundled game from Altered Beast to Sonic the Hedgehog. The stage was set for the console war. And oh boy, it, 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 do you remember the console wars? I was young. Uh, I remember seeing a few things, but not a ton. Yeah, the the console war. The, if you think uh, Microsoft and uh, and Sony sniping at each other occasionally is bad, I mean it was just outright brutal. Granted, Nintendo didn't do too much uh, sniping back. They did a little bit, but uh, Sega just uh, was just ruthless. And then Atari jumped in at some point, and a couple others, uh, calling the, the Sega and Nintendo toys for one. Uh, uh, Do the Math was a big one from Atari as well, when they started bolstering their 64-bit uh, console. But it was just ruthless back and forth. And I, I eventually jumped ship to Sega, mostly due to the price of memory serves. And also, uh, Sega had a, a wider range of... Uh, games when I jumped on because they had started to pull some of the third-party developers from Nintendo because Nintendo has uh, pissed them off so much and and, <laughs> and, and Sega was able to uh, work out deals with them. I, I don't think... It's a tale as old as time. Nintendo losing third-party support. Yeah, I mean, that, this is where it really starts. I mean, to be fair... Nintendo had to do something to try to counteract uh, the problems of the market crash, but they, they were iron-fisted in it. So it cost them in the long run, actually. So, I, I don't think there was really a winner or a loser of, of this particular generation. I think both consoles did well enough, and it was close to a 50-50 split towards the end of the uh, console generation. Granted, Sega started then shooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> Repeatedly. Yeah, the- the thing I remember most is Sega does what Nintendo. Yeah, uh, that was actually from uh, Tom Katz. That that was uh, the start of his, uh, his marketing uh, campaign. So uh, you can see uh, the shifted tone because up until this point they were very respectful of one another, and this was also uh, the beginning of a problem with Sega because Sega at this point was really two different companies. You had the Japan division which was doing their own thing. And then, in order to get uh, to, uh, uh, Kolzinski to uh, work with them, which he came from Mattel, actually. <laughs> he had just finished uh, uh, reviving the Barbie brand and the Hot Wheels brand, which you may remember was also very big in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I know, you, I know uh, which one of those you were more interested in, though. Uh, well (laughs) well uh, he uh, was brought in and in order to get him to sign Sega had uh, to say uh, do whatever you want which for a while worked but then uh, there was infighting between the two and that's part of the reason why Sega fell uh, uh, off after this particular console generation was that uh, Sega Japan didn't like some of the choices that was going on because there was more of a focus on the Western audience. But, yeah, I uh, remember the Sega Genesis rather fondly. It, th- there was a 
just an amazing assortment of games. Uh, the Sega Genesis I actually got was the one with the pack in uh, six t- uh, pack instead of uh, just Sonic. Uh, yeah, I, I played Streets of Rage a lot, uh, Golden Axe, a lot of beat 'em ups actually. Uh, there was a fair number of racing games that I played. Uh, I remember Super Hang On for the Genesis, which was a uh, updated port of uh, Hang On from uh, their arcade days. It was just, an, it was an amazing time, uh, really, to be a gamer in general, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I was a, I was a Nintendo kid in the day, back in the day. Well, I, I jumped um, ship to the Genesis, but then I went back to the N64 afterwards because, oh, well, let's talk a little, I don't have the actual notes, we're more in anecdotes uh, still, but uh, the t- uh, Sega really lost my trust uh, towards the end of the Genesis period with the 32X and the CD, uh, 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 the Sega CD. Uh, they were very expensive and very cumbersome, and they didn't really get the support that they needed. And they were more stopgaps to the next generation. They, the The 32X and the Sega CD were essentially the Xbox One X of their day. I mean, if you think about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, for the time. Uh, they're not a full console, but it's uh, this weird half step to try to uh, get a uh, foot in the door for the next generation. And uh, they dropped up over of the 32X within a year. The Sega CD really it had some titles, but a lot of them were very cumbersome. That people didn't really know what to do with the uh, format. And then they went to the Sega Saturn, which was being pushed heavily by uh, by Sega of Japan, and then was quickly uh, replaced with the Dreamcast because the Sega Saturn just it was an absolute mess to work with. <laughs> uh, developers absolutely hated it, and it just didn't get much support. And at this point, uh, yeah, I just I remember talking with a couple friends on the school bus, uh, and they were so excited about the Dreamcast, and I said. I don't trust Sega because of uh, what they did with the uh, Sega Saturn. Yes, I was a pessimistic bastard back in the day. <laughs> Even when you were a child. Or I guess then, since you're about a decade older than me. Well, maybe not that well, much. Uh, well, you're several years older than me. You would have been in what? Middle school? Uh, th- high this school? was uh, early high school, so if memory serves correctly. Uh, and I was uh, saying, I don't trust Sega. I don't think they're going to support it for that long. And I was right. I mean, the Dreamcast was a, a good console and it had uh, strong game support, but it was pirated at the wazoo and there was really a lack of wanting to support it by Sega. They just never had the drive to uh, stay in hardware. They wanted to go into software mostly towards the end of the uh, Sega Saturn and into the Dreamcast era, which is where they went. Yeah, I will say I remember playing a Sega Dreamcast. I didn't own one, but I can vividly remember this, playing this console and thinking, wow, this is something else. This is way better looking than the Nintendo 64, which was what I was mostly playing at the time. I, at some point, had a a PS1, although that might have been my dad's, because he had a couple of consoles before he kind of came up, gave up on gaming and just gave them to me. And this was better than a PS1, the, the Dreamcast. Yeah, I I didn't have anything beyond the Genesis personally. I had a friend that had the Sega Saturn. He got it uh, for Christmas the year before they uh, canceled the support. He was pissed. (laughs) 
I mean, the console wasn't that old. It had a four-year uh, lifespan between it and the Dreamcast. So, uh, it, it didn't uh, last that long. But I, I went to the Nintendo 64 after uh, the Sega Genesis. Uh, did a bit of gaming there. <clears throat> I ran, uh, most of my time there was rentals, to be perfectly honest. I didn't own a lot of N64 games. To be fair, I live out in the middle of fucking nowhere, so, you know, getting somewhere to buy games is a bit more difficult for me, which is, uh, you know, really the reason I switched to PC was uh, a lot easier to get titles just in general. Uh, but I have a lot of memories of uh, GoldenEye, actually. Uh, me and a, a few friends uh, playing that together. Uh, probably my most vivid memory of, uh, of GoldenEye was there was this one kid in school that uh, he, he thought he was hot shit, uh, pretty much. You know? You know, one of those. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was talking about how he could uh, 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 beat me and two of my friends uh, three-on-one in GoldenEye. We murdered him. <laughs> uh, l- let's put it this way. Uh, uh, we were so ruthless with him, he actually broke down crying. <laughs> I was that hot shit kid for hot shit kid for Halo when yeah, I was. Yeah, but you had the younger. skills to back it up. I did. I almost I, I kicked everyone's ass up until I got to high school and became friends with the one kid in the school who was better at Halo than me. Yeah, it, it, he was uh, all mouth and no skill uh, for a lot of things, but video games in particular. Uh, and uh, it, it was fun. <laughs> But, uh, you know, a lot of uh, times uh, staying up uh, playing uh, uh, GoldenEye, I, I didn't have Mario myself. A uh, uh, friend absolutely uh, loved Mario, but I just uh, I just couldn't get into it. And this was uh, really the time I fell off Mario, just in general. I actually played a lot of Harvest Moon, Harvest Moon 64, which uh, probably says a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play uh, Body Harvest? Uh, I think I read it at one point, but I don't have a lot of memories for it. That was I mean, one of my I mean, even running games, four titles. Uh, running games was a lot closer, but you know, it's w- would rack up a, a big price tag very quickly. That, and that's probably the biggest thing about the digital revolution is just the fact that you know it doesn't really matter where you are now. You know, even uh, getting the physical copies of games, you know, I can. Uh, get a Nintendo Switch in two days. Assuming they're in stock, of course. Yeah. And never have to leave the house. Uh, if uh, Back in the day, uh, you know, it's hoping the store would have it, or, or you know, even carrying it, because uh, I remember a couple local shops just didn't carry Nintendo stuff at all for a while, because they're too uh, backwards, I guess. I could buy a Nintendo Switch on Amazon right now for two ninety nine and have it delivered by Thursday. Yeah, and you, you would be sure that you'd have it. That's the thing, is that uh, it's quite <clears throat> different from when we grew up. Yeah, this is very this is outside the scope of our show and potentially our knowledge, but man, it's a whole different world today to just get whatever you want whenever you want at most within a couple of days. Or even just digital I, games on PC in general. 
I mean, I'm not even talking yeah. about you know, just the sheer volume of gaming. I'm just, just uh, be able to have pretty much any game I want within a couple of hours after downloading it. Well, I should say including downloads. Yeah. I remember when I first started downloading digital games direct to drive. And uh, I think they were still EB Games at the time before they became GameStop. Or maybe they were still even Electronics Boutique before they shortened it to EB Games. But getting digital games from there, too. Yeah. I I admit I was a pirate at first on PC because it was still a pain in the ass to actually buy the uh, PC games. Uh, But uh, that's really where I started uh, switching to PC gaming was just the uh, the ease of grabbing games before yeah. there was a really a easy legitimate way to do it but i uh, did some DOS stuff as well uh that's you know kind of uh, leading into uh, a different area though uh any uh thing you really want to talk about on uh on topic i don't think so i mean you're doing a good job and yeah so you got it gets a little murky towards the middle just because the, there's like two acquisitions there that uh, there's not a lot of info on, so I had to just kind of skip over them uh, mostly. Uh, but uh, pretty much the the reason why Sega uh, just had so much trouble was just infighting. It makes you wonder what would have happened if uh, Sega Japan would have took the Western market more seriously, because that's uh, really the big problem is that uh, they. Uh, just uh, ignored the Western market and uh, a much bigger market, mind you, and tried to be niche Japan uh, uh, focused uh, company, which didn't really work back then. And uh, there's also this thing where, okay, they Sega has in their history, they missed out on being able to uh, essentially published Nintendo 64 because at one point, Kulzinski wanted to switch uh, the Sega Saturn to a more powerful chip, but it was uh, based, I think it was in the US, but it was also going to be, uh, uh, it wasn't uh, part of Sega's dealing uh, in uh, Japan, so they skipped out on it, which was the processor of the Nintendo 64 and was a lot easier to work with than the Sega Saturn. Alright, so that's one. Uh, there's this whole thing with Sony where they w- worked with both Nintendo and Sega at one point to try to build a CD add-on to, for the SADS and Sega Genesis. That failed, which eventually... Well, let's put it this way. It was the Nintendo PlayStation. Huh, that sounds familiar. Indeed it does. Yeah, they missed out on the PlayStation. <clears throat> and... At one point, Microsoft wanted to work with uh, Sega, which, in theory, they missed out on the Xbox. Because the uh, Microsoft was wanting to get into games uh, in the late 90s, and they were looking to uh, do a deal with Sega. And Sega of Japan just said no. I mean, it's just astounding to think just how many times Sega shot themselves in the foot. Well, Japan as a whole... It's a very insular in general, uh, market uh, in, uh, in yeah. mindset. They're starting to change here in the last few years, but they're still pretty far behind the curve in that respect. Yeah, but just think how 
different the gaming uh, scene would have been if Sega took even one of those deals. The processor for the Nintendo 64, which made it so easy to work with, or easier work to work with, I should say, because it was still early 3D. Uh, having the Sega CD be the PlayStation, which uh, the PlayStation was just an absolute powerhouse when it came out, or working with the or, or, sorry, uh, working with Microsoft to for an uh, early Xbox prototype. I mean, it's just astounding. It would have been just a completely different landscape. And just imagine if there was still four <clears throat> companies in the uh, in the console uh, console races having to deal with Sega in the mix as well. Uh, assuming that Sony d- uh, wasn't still in the mix. Just a completely different landscape. Indeed. So, uh, anything else? Or is it your turn again? Uh, no, I don't think I have anything else. So, and rounding out our list for the first ever name behind the game, we have Ubisoft. The second choice that I made. In March of 1986, five brothers of the Guimont family founded Ubisoft in... Should we be in an outrageous accent? <laughs> I, have, I have no idea how to pronounce this town name. Carentois? Carentois, France. Yves Guimot made deals with EA, Sierra Online, and Microprose in the same year to distribute Ubisoft's first games in France. Uh, Yves is the CEO uh, of Ubisoft and is the sort of figurehead for the company out of the brothers. As far as I could tell, all five still work for or have uh, top-level positions in Ubisoft proper. Uh, by the end of the 1980s, Ubisoft began expanding to other markets, including the United States, the United Kingdom, and Germany. By 1993, they had become the largest distributor of video games in France. In the early 1990s, Ubisoft initiated its in-house game development program, which led to the 1994 opening of a studio in Montreal, France, which later became their administrative and commercial head office. In 1996, Ubisoft became a publicly traded company. Ubisoft is credited with the creation of the Frag Dolls in 2004. Also in 2004, Electronic Arts purchased 20% of the Ubisoft stock before that was halted. And as far as I can tell, they still own that 20% stock in Ubisoft. Uh, I actually did a little bit of research on that and couldn't find that whether or not EA had sold the stock or they had been bought back out or something like that. So to the best of my knowledge, EA owns 20% of Ubisoft. Well, that Ubisoft explains curr- a few things. Yeah. Ubisoft currently has 39 offices and or subsidiaries spread across 20 countries, making them the second largest video game studio, with only Activision Blizzard being a larger studio with more subsidiary and development offices. Uh, they had 50-something, and then EA was third with, I believe, 32. Uh, Ubisoft earned $1.46 billion during the 2016 and 17 fiscal year, and the original they originally estimated to earn between $1.6 and $1.7 billion for the 2017-18 fiscal year. 
However, they've already passed that target, and the new estimate puts the fiscal earnings at around $2 billion. With the end of the fiscal year coming in just over a month, we'll see how they actually do on that goal. In 2009, Ubisoft purchased the Tom Clancy brand for $94 million, and it has gone on to be one of the most successful brands overall, earning the company roughly 10 times that amount in profits since 2009. In 2015, Vivendi began targeting Ubisoft for acquisition through a stock buyout, which lasted until the end of 2017. Well, they finally the fought Gimo, it off? Technically, sort of. The Gimo family battled Vivendi by buying back millions of dollars worth of stock in the last couple of years in order to raise their controlling stake in the company and avoid losing it. In early 2018, Vivendi has ceased purchasing new stocks in Ubisoft, stating they never intended to buy out the company, Bullshit. only invest in, in what looked like a good opportunity to make money. It is believed that the Gimel family purchased enough stock to make the, the Vivendi takeover prohibitively expensive due to French laws. Uh, and I looked up some of that. I am not a lawyer, but to the best of my knowledge, France requires that any company that buys or gains 30% of stock in another company is forced to attempt to do a legal takeover. Uh, and depending on how much stock other shareholders own of the company, that can lead to long, very prolonged legal battles. And that was the Gimo's strategy, was to buy back enough of their own company to make it a essentially a stalemate legal battle, which they would win by default due to them being the initial uh, owners. So in total, from the best that I could find out via research, EAA owns 20% of Ubisoft, Vivendi owns 27%, the Gimel family owns 20%, with another 20% of stocks uh, or stockholders saying that they uh, give control to the Gimel family for their voting shares, with the remainder of the company owned and traded by the public and other corporate entities that don't have any real voting power. Uplay was initially released in 2010 for certain PC titles strictly as DRM. It was essentially a disaster, requiring a permanent internet connection to play games. If the internet connection was lost for even a moment, your game would stop working and force you back to the desktop and not allow you to continue, treating it as if you had pirated the copy. In July of 2012, it released as a service for a console and PC which users could sign up for and purchase games and receive deals through. It prevented many console titles from having all content unlocked unless you signed up for the service by treating it like the pass code that uh, games had for a while. Uh, online pass? Meaning you had to... Yeah, the online... Treating... Yeah. It was treated like an online pass for console games. It has evolved into the current Uplay client on PC, a service that is attempting to be a quote-unquote Steam for its own published games. Wait, that's evolved? Yes. It's, it looks shinier than it used to. Oh. Uh, it's held in negative regard by the majority of users being forced to play uh, or to launch Ubisoft games through it, even if they're purchased on other platforms such as Steam. In recent history, its reputation has improved slightly due to a mix of game giveaways and improvements in Ubisoft's customer service. It still remains the butt of many jokes, both in the industry and personally on our show. <laughs> Ubisoft... <laughs> Ubisoft has had its fair share of controversies over the years, particularly in the last five to ten years. Ubisoft originally was regarded as a quality company, making quality products and games, but in recent years, many of their games has been re have been released as buggy, downgraded messes, so much so that many industry pundits and journalists consider Ubisoft an untrustworthy company. These games have done damage, 
or the games which have done damage are included, but not limited to Assassin's Creed Unity and Syndicate, Watch Dogs 1, For Honor, The Division, Wildlands, Far Cry Primal, and The Crew. Ubisoft is also notorious for terrible DRM practices using such strict versions of DRM that require always online connectivity or do odd things such as run a virtual machine on your hardware to protect the games from privacy. These DRM practices have led to further bugs Uh, and glitches. Privacy, That's, did I say privacy? Oh, whoops. I have piracy in my notes, so I apologize. Uh, these DRM practices have led to further bugs and glitches for legitimate users of the games, while pirated versions were more playable and less buggy. Excuse me. Ubisoft also recently, or in recent years, came under fire for its stupid response to criticism that Assassin's Creed Unity should have had playable female characters in 2014. They infamously responded, saying that it was too difficult and would take too much time to create female character models, as opposed to just simply saying something like, we didn't think about it, or we chose not or to. Or too far along been, in uh, game development. Which would have been more honest and potentially beneficial to their PR instead of a disaster. Ubisoft has published an extremely large number of games over the years, including both self-published games, and they have taken on in recent years a sort of indie program where they publish small games for indie developers. Some of their most notable titles or franchises include the Assassin's Creed franchise, the Far Cry series, their litany of Tom Clancy titles, the Just Dance series, the Anno series, Rayman, Prince of Persia, and a select few Armored Core games. Those are specifically due to my own taste that they wound up on the list. <laughs> As for my personal history with Ubisoft, this Ubisoft was the company that sort of kicked this whole idea off. We said before... Uh, Not on this show, but on a previous show. We kind of got the idea for doing this based on something that the co-optional podcast did. And Ubisoft was one of the games that they talked about. Being a game that, despite all of its bullshit, it still makes games for gamers. That, at its core, these games are interesting, fun, and while they have their formula, they do occasionally make, and in the past they have certainly made, uh, great advances in game design and genre setting trends um and i will say i've played quite a few ubisoft titles over the years Uh, i played all of the assassin's creed titles up to black flag i haven't played any of them since um that's when i swapped to pc gaming and the assassin's creed games the most recent ones on pc have had way way more issues than on the console because of late ubisoft seems incapable of developing games for pc uh, supposedly Origins had less problems than the previous two Assassin's Creed titles on PC, but as I haven't played any of them, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but aside from Assassin's Creed, I've played all of the Far Cry games up to Far Cry 4. Um, I should say not including Far Cry 4 and then the ones since then. Um, I've played quite a few Tom Clancy titles. Now, prior to 2009, Ubisoft did produce a number of Tom Clancy titles, but other developers did as well. But from Ubisoft, I've played the Tom, both Tom Clancy Hawks games, the uh, arcade flight uh, combat games, sort of like Ace Combat. Um, I have played The Division. I've played a number of Rainbow Six games um, and also... End War. I really liked End War. That is their voice-controlled real-time strategy game. Or I guess it's more of a real-time tactics game. 
because you enter a battle with your troops and you can't get any more aside from what you've brought. There's no base building or anything like that. So it's more real-time tactics, but still an excellent game in one of the first games that, uh, or one of the first things that got me into voice controls. Um, I've also played some of their other games a little more, I would say loosely like just dance. I'm terrible at just dance, but the occasional very rare party that I've been to where that that's there, I'll usually have a couple of alcoholic beverages and then a few rounds of just dance will ensue. Uh, excuse uh, also, excuse me while I try to scrub my <laughs> mind's eye for that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, I'm also a big fan of the Anno series. Um, more recently, uh, I mean, there's quite a few Anno games spanning back 15 or so years. Um, but I've only played the two most recent ones, but I've enjoyed them quite a lot. And I'm looking forward to the next Anno game, which is 18, is it 18 something or 17? Uh, it always uh, equals not. So yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the ones that's back during the age of sale. So I'm looking forward to that as, uh, coming out in the next year or two, as long as it's not filled with the more recent Ubisoft garbage of bugginess and microtransactions. But Ubisoft is, is one of the top uh, third-party publishers in the world. Uh, most people think of the big ones, or the most ubiquitous ones, as EA, Ubisoft, and in more recent years, Bethesda. And uh, I've been a big fan of their games for a long time. I, I've been really disappointed in the last few years with what the, they've been putting out in terms of their bugginess and their downgrades. I did play Watch Dogs, the first one, and I really enjoyed that game. Um, the storyline is less than memorable, but what, the moment of gameplay... person? Yeah, uh, Blandy McBlandface and his uh, bland niece. But um, the, the moment-to-moment gameplay is quite enjoyable, and that's what kept me coming back to that game. Um, I didn't go for the second one, though, because now I'm a PC player, and the Watch Dogs series so far has had uh, issues on PC, both with graphical downgrades and bugginess. So I have not gone for the second one. I might someday, but by the time I get around to playing it, it might be too late, essentially. And then Armored Core, uh, I was surprised to find that Ubisoft has published several Armored Core games. So there's about a dozen Armored Core games in the series. Uh, off the top of my head, I believe they have published four. And Armored Core is a giant arc, well, not a giant, it's an arcade mech combat game where you have some simple control over assembling your mech, uh, different parts that have different base stats and different weapons. And then you fly your big stompy mech all over the place and blow stuff up in true, think Gundam. Think Gundam instead of Mech Warrior for the type of mechs that you have here. And it's a lot of fun. And I actually started playing that game on the original PlayStation when a friend bought it, brought it over. Uh, they were like spending the night or something at my house. They brought it over and we played before we went to Bible school of all things. I was like, I don't know, eight or nine. So I didn't really have a choice in that. But Ubisoft, I think, is a game that or is a company that still makes games for gamers. They've gotten caught up in a lot of recent industry industry trends and in sort of this pushing the envelope for graphics and sales that many companies have gotten caught up in over the last decade or so. I still think that they try really hard to make games that gamers will enjoy. And they're just trying to figure out how to stack all this extra monetization 
on top of that. And I'm not giving them a pass for that, but I still feel like they're trying compared to your EA or, well, specifically your EA, which is trying to just figure out how to get as much money out of people as possible. So much so that they screwed up the biggest, one of the biggest franchises in the world, Star Wars. Uh, and uh, brought down uh, the <laughs> rule of law in many countries on them. Indeed, they did. I mean, how do you Indeed fuck up Star did. Wars to the point where it doesn't sell? You be EA, that's how. Oh. So that's my personal history and a brief sort of company overview of Ubisoft. Ubisoft has obviously a lot less company history as Microsoft or Nintendo or Sega. They've not been at it as long, and they don't have a lot of stuff outside of just developing games. So any questions about Ubisoft? Any thoughts? Uh, Not really. I mean, uh, I made my jokes about you play earlier, Dana. Yeah, you did. But I just thought I'd check. All right. Well, with that, that wraps wraps up our first name behind the game segment. Uh, This, unless everyone just says that they hate it and they think we're stupid, this will become a semi-regular thing. Yeah, not we just probably on won't do... uh, uh, this particular uh, genre. We'll uh, have it more focused. Or we'll, ha- we'll uh, focus on uh, more... Uh, I would like to do more obscure stuff as well, but... I would too. The main reason that I picked Microsoft, like, immediately, Microsoft was my first choice, and I have to think about it twice, was just how many years I've spent in the Microsoft gaming ecosystem compared to other game companies and developers and things like I'm super familiar with Microsoft and then Ubisoft I felt like I had to based on the inspiration for this idea of where it came from but beyond that we both have a long list of companies that we'd like to talk about some of them large some of them small um and I don't think I, I don't know we'll see maybe if it's like a really slow week yeah but this requires a fair a amount of research but I don't think we'll be doing two each anymore no just one each probably because it was like five hours six hours of prep and research time for both of these to get all this stuff ready for me yeah uh, mine wasn't quite as long but mine also had everything uh, rather neatly uh, packed together then again i also sat and watched a lot of videos as well so maybe even longer yeah it it really depends on how you uh, deal with it because uh i've watched a fair amount of nintendo history which uh, another little uh uh, fact about Nintendo that uh, I forgot to throw in was they actually owned a baseball team for quite a while or had a controlling interest in uh, a baseball team. I knew I'd heard that before. The Seattle just Mariners. Just like a trivia thing. Yeah, just like a trivia thing. Like, did you know? Yeah, up until the uh, mid 2010s. If, uh, if I recall correctly, they only uh, sold off uh, fairly recently. Yeah. Yeah, well, Nintendo tried to get their fingers in a lot of things. And then they uh, went away from the Love Hotel and did other things. hi So, with that, let's move on to our next topic of episode 100. Our first of our next recurring segment, the Mount Rushmore of... And for today's Mount Rushmore, we're going to be discussing important figures in gaming. A fairly broad topic, which we said could include video game characters. Yeah, I have uh, uh, or I have a couple characters uh, uh, in my master list. Not today, though, unless you cause me to go really far down my list. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that'll happen, but we shall see. So, what we each have a list of four, and do you want to just go back and forth? Yeah, that sounds fun. Okay. You go okay, first. Okay, so mine 
this was someone I thought of pretty much instantly. I, I came up with two names pretty much instantly, and this is one. A lot of people hope to generate one iconic character in their lifetime. This is a man that created countless characters over the years. Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto. Yes. He has a game list to his credit that I think most developers would kill for even half of. He's created Mario, which he adapted from a jump man, which is also in his creation, Donkey Kong. Uh, he uh, created The Legend of Zelda, F-Zero, Star Fox, Metroid, Kirby, Pikmin. He's been a driving force in Nintendo since the late 70s when they when he pulled their ass out of fire by refitting arcade cabinets uh, for their game Radar Scope that didn't sell all that well because they took too long to publish the game and created Donkey Kong out of those scraps. It, he has created the face of 80s and 90s gaming and is still a driving force of a gaming to this day. It, it, I can think of no one to be the first person I can think of. Well, obviously, but uh, yeah, I can think of no one more important to the gaming scene as a whole because... Mario was really what pushed Nintendo in the North American market. Yeah. Shigeru Miyamoto was on my list, my, my big list, and I was pretty sure that you would pick him. So I decided not to put him on my Mount Rushmore only because I was pretty positive you were going to pick him. And Shigeru Miyamoto was the first that popped into my head when we sat down and started talking mm-hmm. about this. Because he is... I mean, he's one of the big faces of gaming that... People are likely to know who he is. I mean, he is, he is uh, so important that uh, there, there's this uh, fact about uh, 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 when I was uh, researching him to get a little bit more info. Uh, one thing that popped up was that Nintendo actually doesn't allow him to bicycle to work anymore. <laughs> they force him <laughs> to uh, go by car because he is so important to the company. Which, considering what happened to uh, one of their engineers back in the day, or after he left the company, I could see why they're a little uh, concerned. Right. Yeah. He's he's a, a treasure for video games. One of only a few developers, few... Uh, I would say creators. I don't exactly know what you'd call creators. Okay, one of only a few creators who is on a short list of, like, most recognizable names. You know, you've, you've got... I think you've got Shigeru Miyamoto, Hideo Kojima, your two Johns, that is Romero and Carmack. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I think you know most people are not going to be able to recognize anybody else that you would say. Maybe Notch, uh, but I bet a lot of people don't know Notch's real name. So, I mean, that's like the short yeah. list of people that everybody I mean, would know. Uh, Miyamoto is just... Well, like I said, he helped revitalize gaming in North America. It, it's hard to imagine gaming in the 80s and 90s without Mario. Yeah. And even before that, Indeed. Donkey Kong. And, and I all mean, his it's hard other to imagine. I mean, he, like I said, he just has this incredible list. 
Yeah, well, it's even even today, it's hard to imagine gaming without Mario. I mean, Mario is still probably the more most recognizable video game character of all time. Uh, you've got a couple that have, have gotten up there and are working their way towards the top, but I bet Mario, by far, is still number one. And Mario games still sell incredibly well and are still very popular. Well, what's a Mario well game at this point? Good because games. that's like half of Nintendo's lineup. Because Nintendo's yeah. had such a problem with third-party developers over the years. Yeah. But it's just, he's had his fingers in a lot of uh, what uh, Nintendo's uh, worked on. He was a producer for Pokemon back in the day. The Pokemans? Yeah, the Pokemans. I mean, it, I had had some of them Pokemans. <laughs> yeah, I played the first couple generations of that, so it, it's just I can think of uh, the one more important to uh, put on first. Indeed, my first uh, figure in gaming that I put on my Mount Rushmore is the is a video game character, and it is the Master Chief. Um, you did say. That this would be a good one for me when I was trying to figure out exactly. Yeah, I was trying to. Uh, what you yeah, meant. I was trying to give you an idea of what to. Uh, what uh, uh, we had several different uh, ideas for uh, the Rushmore immediately, but I wanted to do also a more general gaming and a general idea of gaming, and yeah. uh, to really uh, <laughs> uh, give you an idea of what I was talking about. I gave you your first one, obviously. Yeah, and. Um... I, I, I really couldn't because I figured you were going to pick Shigeru Miyamoto, and yeah, I wonder if you, I wonder I, I how many of my other most, four you know uh, immediately. We'll find out, but I, I figured you know who's who's the next most important one to me, and I thought back to my history of gaming with Microsoft, and yes, you had suggested this, but I thought there could be no better character, no better figure to put at the top of my list than the Master Chief, because, as I stated discussing my Microsoft history, the Halo games, with Master Chief being the main playable character, the the poster boy of the Halo games, being the one leading the charge. Halo put Microsoft on the map, the Master Chief has become such a well-known cultural icon that he has a is the technically the only video game character with a wax bust technically. at, uh, yeah, technically, at the Wax Museum. Uh, and it's freaking huge, too. It's built to scale based on uh, the game description of Master Chief. And it's seven feet, three inches tall, which is like... So, two... in other words, Master Chief is on stilts. Yeah, it's like, I think that's what, 2.3 meters tall? Because two meters is roughly six Sorry, feet. Sorry, I only so... speak American. I think it's 2.3 or 2.4 meters tall. You're going to have to put that in freedom units. It weighs several hundred pounds, which granted the Master Chief in the series weighs something like two tons when he's fully outfitted in his armor. But, Maybe you should go on a You know, dive. it's wax. But, uh, but, I mean, Master Chief defined first-person shooters for a long time and still does. The Space Marine cliche, while it's a cliche now, the Master Chief started that and... Uh, wasn't that really more grow. Warhammer before that? Or you mean in video well, I mean, games? I mean in okay. video games. Uh, I was just, I wanted to clarify that. I would say the Space Marine cliche. But it was, is, and in the Halo series, is still taken very seriously. Um, and the Master Chief spawned an entire 
universe off of a video game. While other video games have and do still continue to have sort of spinoff universes that go into books and comics and movies and TV, the Halo series, because of the popularity and ubiquity of the Master Chief, got all of that a lot faster than most other game series. The only other serious competitor I can think to the Halo universe is the Warcraft universe, which got over a decade head start on Halo, yet because of the popularity of that, uh, the Halo universe is as large, if not larger, with more games, more books, and more comics, as well as multiple movies, a couple of uh, feature-length anime films, as well as the shorts. I mean, just the Master Chief has emanated into world culture, like I said before, when discussing the Microsoft history. And he's the 16th because of... That's one of the reasons, cultural proliferation, that Halo wound up in the Video Game Hall of Fame. So Master Chief, top marks on my list. Okay, so back to me. Uh, When I was thinking back on my gaming history, there was uh, one other name that really popped up as an important uh, thing. Now, I mentioned that uh, when I started PC gaming, I was a pirate. To be fair, a lot of people were back in the day, so that's not exactly, uh, don't think, a black mark on me. But there was somebody that said that piracy is a service problem. Do you know who that is? Would that be Sir Gabe Newell? Yes, our lord and saver, Gabe Newell, the Gaben. I will say Gaben is on my list. I wasn't sure if you're going to pick Gaben or not, so I put him on there. Yes, uh, I I think I pretty much had to because he uh, has been a advocate for PC gaming for quite a while. He uh, it was really the driving force behind uh, Steam and pushing it to be the most open of markets on uh, uh, most open of digital markets on PC for better or worse. I'm not exactly sure which one I would say for this point. But it's really hard to argue not putting Gabe on very quickly. (laughs) Just because of how easy and how cheap it's made PC gaming over the years. Indeed. And of course you have, well, for a while, you know, Valve's uh, software library as well. Half-Life, Portal... Uh, moving into uh, Team Fortress 2, Dota, that sort of thing. Uh, they have a lot of blockbuster hits as well. I really wish they still published games. <laughs> yeah, I wish they could g- overcome their fear of the number three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is why I put Gabe on another, as number two, because uh, he has this pathological fear of number three. I couldn't put him on third. Oh my god, sometimes you and I think so much alike, because Gabe was number two on my list, and I was going to make the joke, because Gabe has a pathological fear of number three, he couldn't be any farther down on the list. Oh, we spend way too much time together. Maybe so, maybe so. But yeah, Gaben definitely has to be on the list, for all the reasons you said. I mean, just, uh, I mean, just, the, maybe more to I come. Mean, just the fact, uh, even if you ignore Steam, uh, him being an advocate for uh, PC gaming in general... And being a driving force in a more open market for PC gaming. Uh, uh, I mean, it's uh, really tough uh, not to argue for Gaben. Uh, Outside of uh, some... uh, Valve has had some missteps along the way. Uh, uh, 
also can't uh, argue that you know they they've been perfect. I mean, I could. I would be wrong. You know, just playing devil's advocate, but I could. I could argue anything. Yeah, but you would be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Only from a certain point of view. Easy, Obi-Wan. All right. So Todd took your number two. And and your joke. (laughs) Right. So my new number two is now Marcus Pearson, also known as Notch. Okay, well, he's further Um, down on my list, but uh, uh, wasn't in my four. Okay. Um, So... Notch is sort of what every, I think every, if not most game developers want to be, sort of the dream uh, developer. Uh, While Notch has done many things in game development and with some charitable works and things like that, what he's most known for is the gaming juggernaut Minecraft. Yeah, well, my notes has uh, creator of Minecraft has fuck you money. Yeah, he's got seriously fuck you money, and the main reason that I say he's sort of what most devs probably dream to be is he comes from basically nothing who, well, not nothing, but he's just your average guy who puts together a game um, as just like a little pet project, and within a few years, it's the biggest thing in the industry, and then within a few more years, his company gets bought out by Microsoft for like $2 billion. Um. And Minecraft has set quite a few industry trends, um, both in terms of gameplay mechanics and copycat games uh, in this sort of survival crafting genre, but it has also set a new trend for educational games, which while they educational games have existed for many years before Minecraft and continue to exist afterwards, Minecraft put a new level of control into the hands of teachers using uh, the game to teach things to students that so far we haven't really seen paralleled anywhere else. There's a few games that get close. Um, the newest Assassin's Creed game has got a sort of a history mode that teachers can use to teach uh, Egyptian history, and KSP has got its education mode designed to be used for like engineering classes and things like that. But in Minecraft, you can build anything. You can do anything to show all kinds of stuff. When we talked about education games in Minecraft, we looked at Classes using it for biology, uh, showing blown up interactive versions of the human eye, using it to teach programming with the basic uh, programming that can be done in the game using the redstone blocks, which effectively serve as electrical circuits. And I mean, Minecraft is ubiquitous. It still continues to be popular to this day uh, on YouTube and across every single platform in existence, pretty much. Um it's on Sony platforms, Microsoft platforms, mobile devices, including phones and tablets. Uh, it's on PC. It's on Nintendo devices. If it exists, you can probably get Minecraft on it. And it still continues to sell ridiculously crazy amounts of copies. I didn't think to look at the number of copies that Minecraft has sold. Do you have that, or should I look it up uh, really don't quickly? don't have that handy. Uh, uh, Notch was pretty far down my list, uh, so I didn't uh, grab uh, sales numbers, but it's just an absurd amount. Uh, Minecraft is one of those games that really put indie gaming on the map that uh, showed that you don't need to have a major major publisher to be a smash hit. Created some of that is also driven by YouTube and uh, Twitch and showing these alternative marketing schemes, uh, putting your game in the hands of 
lets players and having uh, a game that is more open that allows people to create their own stories, their own universes uh, can work and be successful as this abstract thing. Still looking up numbers? Indeed. Uh, it was over 100 million copies sold in 2014. Yeah, I would uh, imagine it's yeah, far more now. And he got fuck you money from Microsoft, so. Alright, Microsoft, or as of... When it is October 2017, Minecraft has sold over 121 million copies across all platforms and doesn't appear to be slowing down anytime soon. So, that is insane. So, alright. Uh, What's your number three? Okay. Unless you have something else uh, to add. Not really. So, let's get fucking obscure. I'm going to give you the name. I'm not going to give you any preference. Uh, or, yeah, uh, any preamble. And I want you to see if you know this name. Ralph H. Bear. Yes, uh, you Ralph actually Bear is know, on my uh, list. You actually have that. I'm I'm impressed. He yep, is the he grandfather of video games. He was an inventor that saw uh, uh, televisions as a way to build an entertainment platform outside of broadcasting. And his invention, the Brown Box, in 1967 which eventually became the Magnavox Odyssey, is considered to be the first gaming console, period. We, we talked about it's hard to imagine gaming without Mario. We literally wouldn't have gaming without Ralph H. Bear. He went on to continue dabbling in electronics. He didn't do too much in the video game side of things. He was more electronic toys, Simon and uh, some other uh, toys in the 70s and 80s, but his uh, contribute his uh, contribution to gaming as a whole just cannot be ignored. I I'm impressed that you uh, knew his name. Yep, I both know his name and had him on my list. Not like my top four to put on because I wasn't well, well, sure. Well, he's like my George Washington. Right, right. So yeah, he's he's not on my list of four, but he was on my overall list when I was considering what to put. So, I mean, there's not, he was close, I mean, there's though. not too much to really talk about, uh, because even though his contributions, uh, were major, I mean, he invented the damn thing. Uh, he didn't dabble too much in the video games as a whole. And, but he also had sort of the general build of Pong as well, way before Pong was a thing. And, uh, clones and adaptations eventually became Pong consoles and, and well, things kind of took off from there. For a while. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Come, come on, you gotta give me some more credit for this stuff. I like video games just as much as you do. Yeah, but most people don't know that name. Well, well to be fair, I'm you also researched. I did, but I was... I was sort of aware of him before I started doing research for this. Like, I saw his name and I was like, oh yeah, I've seen this somewhere before. Yeah, he only died a few years it. ago. In his 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I had seen it before yeah, he, researching yeah, he was, this. But... He wasn't one of the first two that I thought of, obviously, but he was very quick. Right. So, all right. Well, the next person on my list is another video game character as opposed to a person. Samus Aran, or Samus Aran, depending on your pronunciation. Which uh, I kind of uh, covered with uh, Miyamoto. 
Indeed. And uh, created by um, Shigeru Miyamoto in the 80s, Samus is the first female, well, not not the first playable female video game character, but the first video game protagonist that takes you through the entirety of a video game. Now, in order to find out that Samus was a female instead of a male, you had to beat the original Metroid in something like two hours, two and a half hours. Yeah, you had to speedrun like it pretty that. much. Yet you, you had to speedrun it and get a certain completion ratio. And in the ending cutscene, Samus takes her helmet off, and well, you see well, that. It well, is... didn't you? Uh, didn't she uh, get into a bathing suit? Yeah, she takes off the combat armor and gets into the zero suit. If you beat it in like two hours and something with like a hundred percent completion rate, if you just beat it in like the two and a half hour mark, she just takes her helmet off and you can see that it's a girl with long hair. But she gets all the way down. Is it? Is it the zero suit or is it? I think it's a bikini. I'm pretty sure it's a bikini. I think you're right. I think it is a bikini. I think the zero suit was later. But uh, people around the world were shocked that a female character was portrayed as being this badass space mercenary marine ninja person with crazy robot powers and a gun arm. Um, and Samus, the or the Metroid series, has been an incredibly successful series over the years. It's had a few misses, but it's had more hits than it's had misses. And uh, as a symbol of female empowerment, uh, Samus wasn't really joined by another major female protagonist in video games until Lara Croft. So it took another decade before females got another lead role in video games. And uh, while Lara Croft was a badass, she was certainly more sexualized than Samus was during gameplay itself. So just nice to see that even back then, female characters could be taken seriously. There is like the Easter egg, whatever, with her in a, in a bikini. Well, well she was also like kind of crucifying. She was like a secret female. Yeah, yeah. It was a step in the right direction. And and I'm not crucifying them for the bikini. It was the 80s. That was way better than what a lot of other video games did to women in the 80s. Or maybe it was the 70s. I'm thinking of you, Custer's Revenge. Uh, That was uh, very, very early 80s. And part of the reason also why Nintendo had the lockout chip. Yeah. And such stringent controls over what was produced. The Nintendo seal, of course. Indeed. So, who's your last person? Okay, well, I'm surprised you didn't hit... Well, uh... Well, it's just virtue of me going first that he didn't hit my second. But uh, my last one is kind of an obvious one when you think of my my, my taste of games. I have a leaning towards management and simulation games. So who is is it? Is it going to be Sid Meier? Will Wright. Okay. Uh, he was the creator, uh, director behind many sim games uh, in the 90s. and uh, Well, he started in uh, actually technically the 80s with uh, SimCity. Throughout the 90s with the various sim blank games. Uh, everything from uh, Sim Health, which was more of an education game. Uh, sim Ant. Uh, all the way up to the Sims. And then, well, he had a misstep with Spore, but that's more just... EA fuckery. Uh, and just a uh, creative uh, uh, conflict within his own team. But uh, he drove uh, the uh, simulation and uh, management genre for a very, very long time. And created many iconic games. Well, I mean, The Sims is still one of the most popular games out there for 
Well, it's a game for non-gamers, which sounds very a backhanded compliment. But it's such a major thing for EA. It's such a shame that he was essentially chased out of the gaming industry by EA in their meddling with Spore. Because Spore was really his dream game. But he was never able to really produce what he wanted. And it disillusioned him so much that he left gaming. But his contributions are still felt to this day. Indeed. Will Wright did not make my overall list. Um, Didn't think of him, did you? No, not at the time. But I am familiar with who Will Wright is in a number of his games. So I could see why you would pick him. So it makes sense. Makes sense. Well, speaking of Spore and using it as a stepping stone, my fifth, now fifth, because I had to bump one down, was Sean Murray. Mm. No, I'm kidding. Well, Sean Murray didn't even make uh, the list, I, I, but you said that. Well, I was I was expecting, you know, uh, uh, put it on the ass end of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. He's sitting there with his bare feet, like, looking at the rocks, going, uh, I should probably put some shoes on before I walk away from here. No, no, Sean Murray did not even grace my list. That was just a really bad joke that when you said Spore, I thought, I'll say this and see what kind of reaction I get out of you. No, the real person who is number five and bumped to the number four slot on or spot on my list is Hideo Kojima. Uh, I have him on my Kojima. list, but I don't have enough uh, 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 experience with him to really uh, talk about him, so he's all yours. Oh, my. Uh, Kojima is the mastermind storyteller or just really lucky, batshit, insane guy, uh, between, or not, God, between, uh, (laughs) behind the Metal Gear series of games. And those games are fucking weird, but in the right way. I have played a large, how many Metal Gear Solid games are there? Several. Aside from the original one that was on the NES, uh, I think I've played every Metal Gear Solid game up until... Uh, Phantom Pain, which was Metal Gear Solid 5. And those games are weird, and they have a lot of odd things in them beyond just giant mechs, but they tell some really intricate and interesting stories that comparing them to, say, films or movies, think, uh, or, sorry, films or TV, think Lost in terms of, like, their abstractness or... Uh, Pulp Fiction and the way that they're oftentimes told out of sequence and have these weird little themes and ideas running through them. And uh, Kojima is just a really excellent, I think, non-linear storyteller is the best way to to say it. He's also great at designing these really awesome worlds that his games take place in. And him and his team are are really good at pulling in even these abstract details to... uh, really flush out a game's world and make sure that everything connects and in its own weird way makes sense. Uh, on top of that, he's the lead writer or the really the lead for Death Stranding, which is another fucking weird looking game. But what with baby thumbs up way. Yeah, baby thumb throat, baby thumbs up. But just everything is delightfully weird. And he's recognized across the industry as being a, a master level storyteller. And there are plenty of people who don't get his games, and that's fine. That, you know, they're not for everyone. But just in terms of sheer storytelling, which is one of my favorite things about a game, Kojima is a masterclass storyteller. And so I think he deserves to be on, on my Mount Rushmore. All right, so... And well, at least since, you know, since I had to take Gaben off of mine, because you took Gaben. Well, uh, we could uh, both have Gaben. 
Maybe like Gaben can he can like massage the shoulders of one of mine. Oh my. He's like, Well, I I'm gonna I'm gonna go stand over here with Rage's Mount Rushmore, but I'll give you like a shoulder rub before I go over there. He's saying that to Kojima. <laughs> Kojima's all about it. Because he's weird and likes stuff like that. Yeah, but I'm, uh, so, yeah, but I'm the, not sure Gaben will want to touch where uh, Kojima wants to be massaged. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he would. Gaben could be an odd character himself. True. But yes, that is our first Mount Rushmore. Our, we have many more. Yeah, our first uh, general gaming Mount Rushmore. Yeah, we have we have many more Mount Rushmores that get some very specific, some a little more broad. But we thought, well, mostly you thought this was a good one to kick off with, and I, and I agree. Sort of the leaders, or not the leaders, but some of the most important figures in the industry. It's a good place to start before we really start to get specific mm-hmm. or move on to other general ideas. Yeah, for because it. we have some that are very, very narrow focused, which I imagine we'll have a lot of overlap on. Yeah. And uh, I think we could probably more easily commit to more regular Mount Rushmore's because it takes a little bit of prep time, but not hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also so. depends on which one we pull because we don't have to do this one over and over again. No, no, no. And we're not going to do this one over and over again. We're going to do different ones. And we might come back and hit some of the more general ones to get sort of a, a tier two Mount Rushmore sort of thing. But I definitely want to do different. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot. The same one over I mean, there's again. still a lot of space on that mountain. That's true. We could carve a lot more heads on that mountain. Maybe we should just uh, put Sean Murray's ass on it. Uh, yeah. I mean, he speaks out <laughs> of it anyway. <laughs> and somehow build like a, a rock like fart wave that you see like in comics or fart cloud. Well, oh, actually I was thinking a uh, waterfall. <laughs> oh, is it going to be Brown? Yes. Oh, Oh, Too okay. Far? Well, maybe. Wow. For you, that's saying something. I mean, poop is gross. Well, so is uh Sean no. Murray. So, I don't think Sean Murray's as gross as poop. But let's not talk about poop anymore. Let's, uh... You know what? That's a beautiful cap to our episode 100 <laughs> special stuff. Let's not talk about poop anymore. Uh, is that our t- idol? <laughs> it might be. I'll put it down. But, uh, if some... There's still plenty of time for something else to come along and, and usurp. It's not... Let's not talk about pooping. For now, though... Let's move from our special episode 100 stuff to more regular parts of the show. We've still got a good half hour or so before we have to start hitting the the brick wall. So, or before we hit the hard out. So if you don't need to take a break, we can move on to our community yeah, corner for the uh, week. Do that because it's a short one. <laughs> a little disappointing that we didn't get anyone uh, saying, "Hey, great job for getting 100." You, we did it. You haven't killed each other yet. You haven't gone full biff. Never go full biff, by the way. We have produced more episodes than they did. By a substantial margin, if you include all of the unnumbered and Franken episodes. And our episodes are also longer. Doesn't necessarily uh, say much to quality, but eh. I think that they're higher quality, too. Just because I can think that. You would be wrong. (laughs) 
Uh, so we only really just had Kyle kind of uh, jabbering away, and we did have uh, some criticism on Twitter, but probably not best to uh, talk about it on the show itself, right? Yeah. So uh, Kyle uh, uh, said, uh, uh, hey, VGL community, not sure if this will, uh, will last. It didn't. Uh, but Super Hot is on sale for a very reasonable uh, 15 uh, bucks on Steam right now. I really like this game, and you, know, you may too. Unfortunately, it's already off sale, I'm pretty sure, or if it's not, it probably is by the time Friday hit, uh, hits. Uh, Super Hot, I, I just haven't really dove into it, because it just seems very expensive for what it is. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm familiar with what Super Hot is, but I've never played it, so I can't really speak either way. Yeah, it's just, like I said, it just seems very expensive. And I'm a cheap ass with a large backlog. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kyle also was uh, talking about uh, he wants to do a uh, live stream of Dark Souls on Twitch uh, some evening this week, uh, which will already be done by the time the podcast is over. Uh, all bosses and uh, have a goofy build in mind. Who would uh, uh, be interested in watching slash contributing on Discord? Well, a little late for that. Uh, and I should mention that the stream itself would uh, be on Twitch on Wednesday evening, starting around uh, 5.30 uh, p.m. Freedom Time EST. So if you have a time machine, there you go. There's your time. Indeed. I'm going to be helping Kyle manage the back end of the stream. Uh, I'll be randomly meeting people. And if people. you want to... <laughs> and if you want to come see that with, and you don't have a time machine, I should be able to get a VOD and put it up on my channel. Um... It all depends on how Kyle does it. If he uses just his own Twitch stream, I don't know if I can get a VOD off of rehosting him through the uh, my Twitch. But regardless, I'll figure it out and I'll get a VOD. If I have to run a second PC and just record the whole thing using like uh, OBS, then so be it. You're, you're, there you're that be hard up for content. <laughs> I just promised Kyle I'd help. I'm doing my due diligence. Still that hard up for content. I mean, we could be uh, recording Divinity instead. <laughs> we could be, but I'm just going to sit here and play with my therapy pillow instead. Do I even want to know? It's like a pillow that's got these little, I don't know what they are, little like things sewn to it that you can draw pictures with your fingers. It's, I just got and here it, I just thought really it was going nice. to be a, a body pillow with uh, your waifu on it. <laughs> I could draw my waifu on it very badly. It's too small. It needs to be bigger. But that's what I've got now. Uh, but anyway, if you wish to help uh, uh, contribute to the Community Corner, you do so. VGLpodcast at gmail.com with your letters, voicemails. Or just tweet us, VGLpodcast, and we'll hopefully uh, get around to you. <laughs> Indeed. <clears throat> so, with that out of the way, are we going to do the doobly-doo for a Discovery I Q? I think so. We still have time. All right. Go for the theme song. Ooh. I'll put my pillow down so I can use both hands for copying oh, and pasting my. links. And I got a, a visual novel right away. So, uh, I think uh, instantly inter interesting you, right? Uh, Maybe. Yeah, well, how about this? A free-to-play visual novel. Uh, okay. Eternal Hour, Golden Hour. 
that's a little bit of a repetitive thing. Uh, looks like it's rated pretty highly from uh, Security Project, so a well-known uh, publisher at least. Looks like it's their first, uh, or this particular developer under them's first uh, visual novel. Uh, looks like it is censored with a free patch, though, for the anime boobies. Woohoo! I'm pretty sure I saw this at some point. Uh, Steam tags, once again, have psychological horror for some reason. Because, you know, that's fucking helpful. Uh, but not bad art. I mean, it's not amazing, but it's good enough. Uh, the characters look a little flat to me. Uh, uh face-wise, I should say. But overall, it doesn't look too bad. Yeah, so far all the first six games have been garbage. Well, that was my very so. first game. Well, good. You hold it down. While and I immediately had another visual novel that doesn't look nearly as good. And another visual novel. <laughs> I think it, uh, since I got that Humble Bundle, uh, Valve's like, oh, well, we know what you want. And another visual yep, novel. I... <laughs> I'm I'm not joking. Uh, these have been no. I've had these have all I've been had a couple no, of no, These have too. all been on a row. Uh, I'm just looking at this one to see if it's worth half a damn. Ah, what the hell? We'll throw it on. It looks decent <laughs> enough. So a uh, wonderful every day down the rabbit hole, which for some reason rabbit hole is hyphenated. Uh, looks like it's a older visual novel based on just the artwork and how it's a 4x3. Uh, I'm, for some reason this seems familiar, but I'm not placing it. Just so you know, you're putting your games oh, in sorry, games I, 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 was, I was just uh, quickly uh, putting links in. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. I was like, where are your games? Are you not putting And then I thought, maybe he put them up there. Oh boy, I, I just saw your game, but... I'm quickly looking on the Visual Novel Database because it seems familiar. It looks like it's rated pretty highly on Visual Novel Database. I th yeah, it's rated pretty highly on Visual Novel Database, so looks like it's worthwhile and it's in the long category of 30 to 50 hours to complete. Don't want to say too much overall, though, just in case of spoilers, because it is a story-driven game, but yeah, there you go. It... Overall, it doesn't look too bad. Granted, you know, it's uh, tough to really say on visual novels without diving in deeply on them. Uh, oh, look, another visual novel. Well, I, I got one, and it is also a visual novel called What? My Neighbors Are Demons? Due to her insatiability in a failed relationship, Selena has attempted to keep her unusual lust under control. However, things are starting to get strange and lewd. When a pair of mischievous sex demons move in next door to her, it doesn't take a rocket or it doesn't take rocket science to figure out where this is going. Well, what about rocket surgery? And that's what my de my neighbors are demons. So that one's on the wish list. Ooh, wait, Sakura, Sakura, okay. My entire visual, or my entire Discovery Key is visual novels. I'm not joking. I had like seven games that were visual no, no, novels. No, no, no. My entire Discovery Queue was visual <laughs> novels. I'm starting a second one just to get a non-visual novel, hopefully. Oh, look, first one's immediately a visual novel. Aha, here we go. This doesn't look visual novel. Uh, yeah, th okay, not visual novel, so there we go. 
Alright, I'm also gonna do a second queue because I had mostly garbage or visual novels that didn't seem interesting. So, I got Ponyo Ponyo Tetris. <laughs> the way you said that was really cute. And probably completely <laughs> wrong. But, don't care. Not visual novel, but... I mean, it's a... Uh, Tetris style game, so there you go. I mean, not really a lot to talk about there. It's just not a visual novel. <laughs> That's all it has going for it. And then I immediately get back into the visual novels. Yeah, my new queue, the first three games have been visual I just, novels. I just got your Debender DNA Twister Extreme. Yeah! Tell us about that game, Rage. What is that? <laughs> uh, no, I'm still going through. Uh, uh, that, the Tetris game was literally my only non-visual novel. Alright, so there's four, five visual novels in a row for me on this queue. Hang on, hang on. Is this uh, a visual novel or not? I I'm I'm down to my last three, and I think I finally had a second one that wasn't visual novels. I blame Hundle Bundle for this, by the way. Yeah, all those visual novels we just got. Uh, This seems interesting. I'm going to add this. Even if it wasn't the, you know, the low, uh, uh, bar of, hey, not visual novel, you're in. This seems, uh, good enough. This is called Symmetry. It is, uh, well, it says, a research spaceship reaches an invaded planet. Nothing is what it seems here, and the, si the situation quickly slips out of control. Can the crew manage to survive and get home? It looks like a management simulation game uh, with some uh, just general gameplay as well. It's 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 one of those that doesn't really say what it is. See, so randomly assigned crew uh, members. Uh, so some sort of rogue light uh, thing going on with it. Very strange. With some simulate, uh, with some uh, survival gameplay thrown in as well. Interesting. <laughs> so my whole list so far, the second list has been visual novels, every game, but this one, Bunny Bounce, the beach bounce resort filled with beautiful girls is full of distractions. This, however, is made even worse when our protagonist Tomo has an accident, which leads to start hallucinating whilst on the job. Are those bunny ears? And what are the girls now wearing to work? Can you help navigate Tomo through the pitfalls of work and maintain his sanity in the face of animal instinct, carnal lust, and girls clad in lingerie? Bunny Bounce, a short but fun visual novel. I'm just uh, quickly going through a third one just to get rid of some of these more visual novels because I'm still hitting visual novels. Oh, my. Oh. Oh. Huh. So this is a shmup. A flat chat justice? Uh, no, Tenta Shooter. Ah. T-E-N-T-A Shooter. And that is porn. That's just porn. Wait, straight up porn? With a sh... Well, there's... Let me just copy and paste this link. I don't see any nipples or vaginas, I mean, not, but there we're are... We're not going to put this one in the show notes. There's your link. There are tentacles and girls. It's like a schmuck uh, okay, tentacle okay. hentai. All right. I think I've seen this one in Keymailer, actually. That's a bee girl with stingers for her okay, nipples? Okay, sure. Uh, oh, God, no, no, spider no, 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 girl. No, no, no. no. 
go to uh, the uh, uh, the community thing, community hub. For Tenta yeah, Shooter? Yeah, I want you to see this. Go to screenshots. Most popular, all time. Okie dokie, screenshots. Most popular, all time. Oh, that's a penis monster. <laughs> I mean, that's just literally a penis with arms. Is what that is. Yep. And that's a vagina monster that looks kind of like an, a pumpkin or an onion. But, that, I mean, it's got a vagina mouth. That's a dildo. That's a tentacle penetrating a girl. Yeah, but, yeah, but you can't see it because she uh, it's behind her panties. And there's more of, of bee stinger boobies. I think that that's supposed to be inside a vagina. Yeah, um, I did three, vi- uh, 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 three well, visual novel discovery cues, essentially. I mean, there's a market out there for this type of game, and I don't think people should be ashamed if they enjoy playing it, but I don't feel like this type of game should be on Steam. Or at least on the discovery queue. I mean, damn. But that's that's just me. Oh, the penis shoots white stuff at of you. Of course it does. Ha ha. Ha ha. To be fair, it's better than some of the shit I've seen on Keymailer lately. That's true. This at least looks like a functional game. Add to wish lists. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not into that. I've got two. Should I do a third? I've queue? just been going through discovery queues to try to clear out all the visual novels, and most of these are shit looking. Yep, that was the problem I ran into. I mean, into. to be fair, uh, yeah, you know, some of them. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a high art for visual novel. If it's uh, decent enough, fine. But even for my lower standards. Uh, these are shit. Uh, it's, uh, visual novels are, uh, basically, uh, where I give a little bit of a pass. And I think I hit something. This looks interesting. I'm desperately trying to find something good. <laughs> Train journey! In parentheses underneath it, hot story. Short story of an indiscreet young girl and fellow traveler. Journey is full of hot moments and memories. You will plunge into a part of her life, learn about the character's feelings and desires of this cute and girl. I, uh, delete Tenta Suitor for you. Okay. Uh, the Station. I'm gonna... Uh, the Station is a first-person sci-fi mystery set in a space station uh, set to study a sentient alien civilization. This actually... It doesn't look too bad. Granted, there's a lot of games in this sort of empty station mystery genre. Because it's usually pretty easy to build. It seems like it's supposed to be very short, though. Which is a very, yeah, down, uh, uh, very uh, negative thing for it. Especially at the $15 mark. But it doesn't look too bad, uh, visually. But hey, it's not a visual novel. Hey, look, immediately back into the visual novels. I'm just gonna have to sit and Monster. go. Oh, oh, oh! Hang on, hang on, hang on. I got one. I got one. I got one that you're gonna love. Okay. Uh, and since this is the hundredth episode, you know, it's fitting that we're doing a lot of discovery key, right? Yeah, I suppose. Sangre Congre uh, Peach, uh, Beach Splash. Essentially, Splatoon. Sin? You mean Sinran Congre? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm familiar with these games. Is this one on my wish list? Oh, well, it's not out yet. It's coming out in two weeks. Um, no. 
Okay, this one is not on my wish list, but I I am a fan of some of the Sinner and Kagura games anyways. I mean, I mean, I mean they're not bad. Uh, look at those jiggle physics. <laughs> but the fact, that, uh, the fact that they're going Splatoon is interesting. Soak them up and they're spraying the boobs. And then immediately back into the visual novels. <laughs> yeah, that was my fourth cue. And uh, I pretty much put every single game that I didn't have a visual novel on here. That tells you just how bad it's gotten for me. I'm just gonna have to go uh, like, when we're not recording and go through like half a dozen cues. It's a water gun sniper rifle and a jet pack or a, a water jet I mean, pack. Uh, uh, is it wrong oh, that no. it actually looks decent? Oh no. Equip cards to customize your oh, girl. Oh shit, I didn't see that. Oh no. Oh, it's in the it's in the trailer. I'm watching the trailer. I don't think it's on any of the screenshots. So it really depends on you know, just how they handle that. If if it's going to be uh, transactions, if it's if, if they have it where everything is unlocked immediately and it's just a customization thing, that's no problem for me. If it's a if it's some yeah. sort of uh, progression system, uh, let's see. Oh, stack the deck your way with over six hundred attribute. Oh, sorry, with over eight hundred attribute cards available, providing improved weapons, unique skills. In summable pets, players can equip any combination of six skills and three pets per per match for a combo their opponents will never see coming. That's a little worrisome. That's actually very worrisome. No. Huh. Love Stories. The visual novel, a series of four stories following characters and a Karen, Charlotte, Sophia, and Jasmine in their early lives as they have to choose what they really love and what path their lives will take. If this is more of a, like a slice of life story as opposed to just like visual novel boobies, then I would like that. I mean, I jokingly say that I like visual novel booby games all the time, and I do, but I also like good games too. And I have basically three jokey ones on here that weren't just terrible. Although Train Journey, I like the art style. It's different compared to other visual novels I've seen. But, yeah, I've still got all, or mostly visual novels. Yeah, I blame Humble Bundle. I'll put this on my list. Yeah, I just clicked through another Discovery queue. All visual novels all looking terrible. I know what I'm going to be doing. Oh, what is this? Beyond Clouds. Yeah, I think I'm done. That that was my sixth one. Besides, like, oh, it doesn't have. Besides, I have a good selection now. It doesn't have English language support at this time, so I'm just not gonna. Saku Saku, love blooms with the cherry blossom. Is that one of yours? Uh, it sounds familiar no. though. Maybe you said it. I mean, it doesn't look very good. Oh, it's in the humble bundle. Oh, well, there you go. Not the one that we bought, or like not the tier that we bought, but it's in Chili Peppers. And there's an ass, like right on so the. So sold, right? Hey, da, da, da. it doesn't sound very interesting. Still, still all visual novels. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this queue up, and then I'm not gonna start another yeah. one. Ah. I was just desperate to find something not visual novel. All of mine are visual novels. Fucking humble bundle. All of these are made by the same company. Uh, Art Light Studio. Uh, They're all... Link me one of those so I can take a look at them. Actually, the 
the train journey is made by uh -huh. them too. So you can just look at that. It looks like these are supposed to be like your equivalent of a dime store romance okay. novel. Oh, I know these guys. If this is who I think it is, actually, okay, on the publisher side of things. Uh, oh, a new soccer uh, game. Uh, if it's not this company, it's a similar one. One of them got in trouble for essentially just using copyrighted material with a filter over it, with in this art style. So if it's not this company, it's someone that did, that's very similar to it. But it's probably just a lot of stock footage. Right, okay. And that's why they're able to produce them for two bucks each. Ooh. Fantasy floating... Uh, is there a term for it? Like, age of sail, but fantasy, so the ships fly. Airship? Is there a term for that? Nah. Maybe, I guess. Well... Mutiny. Oh, uh, Lincoln. Looks cute. Uh, I would definitely call that airship. It would just. Okay. I actually think I saw this on one of my cues, and uh, I think I may have passed over it. Uh, it looks familiar. I think I saw it, and just saw the. Yeah, it looked like it was just another visual novel, but it looks like there's some gameplay elements there as well. So maybe I shouldn't have passed over it. Looks like it's another one of those that is uh, censored on Steam and. Uh, with a uh, a booby patch coming out later. <laughs> Rosen Kretzdelit Freudenstatchel. Gesundheit. <laughs> this doesn't look good, but the title of it is silly. Just gonna mark that as not interested. Sisters in a hotel. Oh my. Mostly negative. Yep, it looks mostly negative. And finally, X-Blaze Code Embryo. Another silly title for a generic-looking visual novel. Code Embryo. I think we're, we know where this is going. Set 150 years before the events of Blaz Blue Calamity Trigger, X-Blaze Code Embryo is a visual novel that follows Tuyo Kagari, a high school student whose world is turned upside down when he's attacked on, by a on. seemingly... With such a wild premise, I don't think I can hang on. You're going to have to go slower. And attacked by a seemingly otherworldly being and saved by a mysterious girl named S. S. Oh, thank you. I just thought the name was silly, so I'd read what it was. I'm familiar with Blas Blue. Uh, Yo, know, uh, hearing Code Embryo, that sounds like something that uh, they would be shouting out in a, a hospital. When someone goes, <laughs> when someone goes into labor. Or Jurassic Park. That's the that's the code that you don't really want to hear. That's the code you don't want to hear. Uh, hey, if you want to fuck baby dinosaurs, go ahead. Are they anthropomorphic with boobs? No. Nah. Maybe. Yeah, but they have razor sharp teeth, so you gotta watch which end you fuck. <laughs> oh. Alrighty. Well, I think it's time to move on. Yeah, we to the part. Uh, eventually got something that wasn't all visual novels. Well, I did. All of mine that I listed are visual novels. And most of them are shit. Mm. Well, yeah. let's just put it this way. Not hot art. Yeah, we're mm. gonna have to fix the uh, discovery queue or uh, do something because damn. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll work its way out. Uh, well, let's move on to the part of the cast where I go first. Sold to an American. 
Oh, what is coming up on my channel and things this week? Well, obviously, I'm doing that thing with Kyle over on Twitch, which I guess I'm doing it out of order, but twitch.tv slash jarthur4707 if you want to watch me stream games on Twitch. And if you heed the tweets that I'm going to post and you come hang out with us, we'll be doing that tomorrow evening for some amount of time. Uh, I don't know how active I'm going to be at the beginning, and Kyle is very aware of this, but my kid will still be awake and Katie will be asleep for the first couple of hours of his stream, so that could be interesting. But after my kid goes to bed, I'll be much more devoted oh my. to what's going on. Uh, but that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and yeah, there will be tweets and things about that tonight and tomorrow. But obviously, tonight and tomorrow for me is a couple of days in the past for you, at the very least, if you're listening to this. So... Otherwise, you can go check out the VOD of that over on my YouTube channel, Gaming Psychologist, as well as other content that's coming up, which is the KSP, um, back, or not KSP, the Kerbalcast backlog, as I continue to grind my way through their 80-some-odd episodes that they have. Um, and I'm ha- I have to not post the Elite Dangerous content that I recorded, because the update is coming out right around the corner and everything that I recorded is going to be just off enough that it's not applicable due to changes that they released in the beta version (laughs) for testing. So that's like three hours of work that is basically useless. Uh, and I'm not going to post because it would be misinformation at this point. It'd be fake news. Uh, It would be fake news. Fake tutorial. A GOP. I'm not in the GOP. So not going to, well, if that. you're fucking uh, um, baby dinosaurs, maybe you could work your way in. <laughs> um, but you can find my YouTube channel by searching for Gaming Psychologist on the YouTubes. I already told you about Twitch. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, though, you can do so at JMA4707, where I tweet about all kinds of things. And I look forward, or I enjoy the occasional back and forth that I get going on with you guys now as our community continues to slowly gain members and hopefully becomes more active. Also, if you want to be my friend on Steam, you can do so by sending a friend request to jarthur4707. I accept all friend requests and love talking to the lovely people. I had a number of small conversations with people this past week about Black Panther, like I said at the beginning of the show, and quite a few people asked me to talk about it, like I said, and that will be coming next week. I will have figured out my thoughts and position on it by then. And if you wish to let them know exactly what episode of the podcast you're coming from, password for this week is Centennial. Centennial. That's good. That's uh, on topic. Yeah, for once. Uh, so, uh, my channel, I decided to take a week off of Civ to devote a recording night to doing more research to be able to get you know, this quality content out. Uh, so, uh, Civ is not coming out this week. Granted, don't think anyone would really notice. Not getting the views on that. Uh, RimWorld is uh, still ongoing. Netherwallop is doing fine. I had an episode where I had to heavily edit my uh, coffee and hacking, though, so that was fun. Now I know your pain. Indeed. Uh, uh, thankfully, I had pretty good notes, so I think I got them all, but definitely my speech was impacted on that. So I had to, you know, put a little note on that and uh, send it out. Uh, I need to record some more RimWorld this week for 
uh, the second episode and well, hopefully some for next week as well to be able to get back on uh, track. Divinity is still under the curse. We really need to sit down and do that. But, you know, that is co-op stuff. And co-op is always a pain to try to get going because it requires two lives to uh, get in sync. Even though our cycles did sync up there for a while. That that, that, that was a beautiful thing with Gaben. Us, uh, us sharing Gaben and sharing a crappy joke about him. <laughs> uh, but, uh... The Sunday Sampler should be good for this week. Uh, some interesting games coming out. And who knows, maybe something actually decent to play. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start working on my evergreen content for that, though. I have a couple, not quite rants, but just general talking points that have been lovingly ripped off from the general topic list. But look at it this way. When we eventually get to those as well, I'll be nice and warmed up for you. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So, if you want to catch all of that, you can find me over at Gaming with Caffeine Rage on the YouTubes, or just Gaming with CR on Twitter, where I'm flipping off uh, YouTube creators for demonetizing everyone that doesn't meet their new goalposts. You, you seem very pleased by that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I liked the the tweet you posted. <laughs> yeah, I decided I wasn't going to dedicate as much time to have a you know, just, uh, you know, like three or four hours of just uh, uh, flipping off. And, uh, you know, use that uh, on podcast time as well uh, instead, you know. It seemed like a more worthwhile use of time for once. Even though I'm still very pissed with YouTube and I'm looking at probably doing Twitch sometime uh, either late this year or maybe next. And, you know, be completely ignored on a new platform. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but if you don't want us to ignore you, you could always send in an email, vglpodcast at gmail.com with your letters, voicemails, gaming-related topics, or your suggestions for Mount Rushmore, your feedback for our couple of new uh, general things, or just to tell us we suck, which for Jared would be a compliment. Wink. Or you just tweet us all that, vglpodcast on the Twitter. Our podcast has been graciously funded by our Patreons. Patreon.com slash Podcast if you wish to chip in and help cover costs and cover our marketing to try to get out to more people. And our patrons also paid for our website, vglpodcast.podbean.com, which hosts the RSS feed as well as the show notes. If you're listening to this on YouTube and want to use RSS, that's where you go. Or if you wish to have an easier option, we're also on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever Jared's decided to shove us. And hopefully it's not a very dark and smelly place. I was waiting for a wink. Did I gross you out there? Just shaking my head, <laughs> yes. I can't see that, thankfully. <laughs> a visual comedy on an audio medium, folks. Yes, groundbreaking stuff. You can see why Jared is, uh, you know, ahead of his time. Or just, yeah, likes to give head. Our intro and outro music is on the ground by Kevin McLeod, and our Discovery Q music is doubly due by the same artist. You can find his work at incomputech.com, and... As always, as his lovely music starts to roll across my voice. Bye-bye. Uh, so, up for another hundred? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, hopefully not tonight, though. I 
No, not tonight. It's it's time to call it a night. But, you know, in the future. Yeah, see you at the Bicentennial. <laughs>